welcome everybody. I'm John Chris. I'm here with Chris Funderberg. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. We've got a epic episode for you today where we're just going to be jumping out of an airplane with no parachutes. We're going to be talking about Mr. Seijin Suzuki. Not one film, not one era of his career. We're just tackling the whole filmography. And who better to join us on this journey than illustrator, cinephile, someone who's preserving the art of handmade posters, number one mysterious Suzuki fan, Mr. Tony Stella. How you doing, sir? Hey, guys. Um, uh, thanks for inviting me. I've been chomping at the bits to be on the Pink Smoke podcast forever. And then I was like, we're pitching topics back and forth. And then you said, oh, Chris would like to do Suzuki. And I'm like, Suzuki? I've been pitching that to James on Wrong Reel. And he's like, I kind of touched on him. Let's go somewhere else. And my obsession has sort of waned a little bit over the years. But I always love when I have the chance to go back into something and then chronologically watch things i feel it always yeah. opens up a whole nother thing because you see bits and pieces here and there and and you kind of have an idea of where it starts and stops so example for example in suzuki i'd never had the overview of the color how does it link with the black and white and so this chance to come on here and just do the whole thing like you said that's uh that's always juicy and i always i we could have obviously done a three-hour podcast on just use the youth of the beast or one of the trilogies but now we're going yeah. to the whole list. the whole thing thank you so much for coming on to do this like you said we've been trying to find something to do with you and you know i, I know that you and i are both big Suzuki fans and John as well, I'm assuming. Although he's one of those filmmakers, I realized John, you and I have never really talked about him that much. Suzuki is someone I've always respected, but I've never really delved deeply enough into his work to get a full appreciation until now, until Tony gave us a list of what he considered, you know, some of the essential works, some of the uh, secondary works to check out. And I've just seen over the last few weeks, so many of his movies. And when I finally got towards the end of his career, it started to click in a way that was so satisfying and I just feel so much more into him now and I'm so ready to talk about these movies. Well, before yeah. we, we dive in, I just wanted to very briefly um, go through his history and background, just a little bio of his, his career before we get into it. Um, he started out uh, sort of in his, his adult life is he served in World War II, was in the Navy. He was on a, a couple of... Um, uh, two different ships that were sunk and he survived. He had a very strange relationship to being in the military is probably my main reaction to it, which he has a bunch of quotes, which are, it's hard for me to describe and understand, but when I would see a thousand or 50 of my compatriots die, it was very funny because it's completely absurd that you're doing this and everybody around you is dying for things that are beyond your control and make no sense to you. So his relationship to the war, I think, informs something that we'll talk about, which is his nihilism. That's one of the things that straight up needs to be said about him. And his nihilism is very different from Western nihilism. It's not a pointy-headed intellectualism that's very somber and pretentious. His, his quote that he cites as sort of his spiritual nihilism, it, and that just right at the beginning, when you watch his movies, it's good to think about is, if you want to sing, then sing. If you want to die, then die, right? This is one of his, his favorite things. So after he leaves 
the military and Japan loses World War II. He becomes an assistant director at uh, the Shochiku studio is where he starts out. He um, was a very bad student his whole life. He had failed to get into uh, University of Tokyo just on grades and, and failed the entrance exams. And he sort of he tells it like he lucked his way into being an assistant director at Shochiku. And there was, by his own telling, was a sort of impossibly lazy alcoholic. He said he drank all the time. He hated doing the job and he would just sit on the bus when they would go film on location rather than do his job as an assistant, uh, do his job as an assistant director or that he'd go pick flowers for his wife. He really likes flowers is something about him as well. From there, somehow, he parlayed that into a job as a director at Nakatsu, at the Nakatsu studio. And from, uh, starting in the mid-50s, going to 1967, he made about 40 films in 12 years for Nakatsu. Incredibly, credibly prolific. He made B pictures. His normal setup was he had 25 days to shoot, three days to edit. And it was such a compressed time frame that his movies would like film in September and be in theaters in early November is how quickly he was doing this stuff. He liked to shoot his movies uh, with knowing that the three days of editing was all he would have. So they were designed to not really need to be edited, that you could just fit them together and get them out. Um, and they were B pictures. They were paired with, with A pictures, like Canto Wanderer was uh, paired with Emma Mira's Insect Woman and Story of a Prostitute was paired with uh, Emma Mira's Intention of Murder. So that's also another thing to think about is that these movies weren't important to Nakatsu. They weren't artistically important. They weren't culturally important. Um, the big thing that happens in his career that sort of builds the myth of Seijun Suzuki is he starts pushing style to the limit in a way that the executives at Nakatsu hate. So when he makes Tattooed Life in the early 60s, he gets like a reprimand. There's a few executives there uh, who don't like him, but there's one who likes him, this guy Seijiro Amori, who says, hey, you've basically taken it as far as you can go with Tattooed Life. Don't, don't do that again. Uh, so he turns around and makes this movie called Branded to Kill, which goes too far. He gets Amori fired and he gets uh, sort of put on ice. He doesn't necessarily get released from his contract from Nagatsu. He just doesn't get to make movies anymore for a little bit. And they have him directing action scenes and constructing scenes for other Nakatsu filmmakers that are under contract. Like he famously did the big uh, shootout at the end of A Cult Is My Passport was completely designed by him. And when you watch A Cult Is My Passport, you go, holy shit, this movie just got great out of nowhere. Suddenly this movie's good. Um, but so he's obviously bristling at this. The thing that pushes everything to a head is the cinema clubs that were springing up around Japan at this time, which are like student run revolutionary youth, sort of what you think of like cool countercultural college kids run these cinema clubs. And they went to Nakatsu and said, we want to do a retrospective of Suzuki's work. We really love his work. And this is the first Japanese director that was going to be honored with a retrospective that would tour uh, the cinema clubs. And the uh, uh, Kyusaku Hori, 
who's running Nakatsu just like loses it. He's like, this fucking guy, this is the one you're going to do a retrospective of. No other Japanese director has gotten this armor. Uh, it's gotten this honor. Like, like get the fuck out of here. He fires him and Suzuki gets blackballed too and can't work anywhere else. So Suzuki takes Nakatsu to court, right? Gets wrapped up in court. His career sort of, he goes from making like four or five movies a year to nothing. He wins in court in 1971, but uh, it's a situation um, like the Rainmaker where uh, Nakatsu goes out of business like at the same time that he wins in court. Uh, they shut down for like three months. It's sort of like a Pyrrhic victory, him winning in court. And then they reopen as a softcore porn studio like shortly after that. Suzuki spends the 70s uh, in the wilderness, just sort of doing nothing, uh, working here and there, not really having a formed career. And then at the start of the 80s, he begins his Taisho trilogy for this producer, independent producer, uh, Genjiro Rado. And these are movies set during the Taisho era in Japan, which is like the, the pre-fascist uh, emperor era. It's like 1912 to 26, I want to say, are the exact years. Did I get that wrong? Yeah, it's a little bit. It's just the early 20s, like bleeding yeah. into the late. And then the Shoah era starts. Exactly. Yeah. And he's um, sort of uh, uh, these that era is famously like the Americanized uh, portion of Japanese history when it seems like they may be taking over a Western style. It's sort of like Japan's roaring 20s in some ways is how you hear it described. And the first of this Taisho trilogy is uh, uh, Zagwerna Weissen, um, which exhibitors refuse to show. That's how sort of poisonous Suzuki still is. They re refuse to show it. So Arado actually exhibited it in like this inflatable tent that he toured around the country. And I have never seen a photo of the tent and would love to. Do you, have you ever seen it, Tony? Do you know what no. it looks like? You only hear it described as an inflatable tent that Zavarin of Eisen was shown in. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are all kinds of ideas that that, that that have sprung up about this tent. But my sort of, you know, no, continue because this is great. This is giving me a kind of uh, overview again. <laughs> we're almost we're almost there because I, yes. I want to interject obviously at, at all kinds of points, but we'll do that later. <clears throat> so in the eighties, he makes um, uh, Lupin the Third anime that's very much for hire, very disregardable movie, and he also makes a um, movie that I think should be part of the the Taisho tetralogy. It shouldn't be a trilogy; it should be a tetralogy, is what I think. And he finishes up the official trilogy uh, with Yumeji in um, 1991. Okay, so then in the 90s, he gets discovered by American cinephiles in a major way. And he starts getting pushed really, really hard by Quentin Tarantino and Jim Jarmusch in the 90s. He's very unknown in America until this period. Most of his films not released in any capacity. He's really not a known entity until Jarmusch and Tarantino start pushing him. And famously, Jarmusch's Ghost Dog is, is an extended homage to Suzuki's work, specifically to uh, branded to kill, although it's easy to see Tattooed Life and Can't It Wander and a lot of other uh, movies he makes in it. And this is when Suzuki sort of gets his, finally gets his flowers while he's still alive. And at the turn of the century in 2001 and 2005, he comes back and makes a, a pair of encore films, uh, Pistol Opera and, and uh, Tanuki Princess, 
that are, you know, sort of him coming back and and playing the the hits in some way. We can talk about those movies later, but he comes back and does those final two movies and sort of ends this tumultuous career in life on a on a high note. It's sort of it's sort of like you know, he's Peyton Manning going to Denver and ending on a Super Bowl. It's really unexpected. Just when you think he's washed up, he really goes out, you know, on a very high note and esteemed and all of that. Sort of at the height of his respect is he gets to end his career on, which is rare for a lot for for most directors. And that's it. That's that's the yeah. Overview. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that that was really awesome because I I I struggled with with fitting it together because usually I, I'm not very analytic and this is sort of something that connects me to Suzuki that a lot of people that try to analyze and sort of put it all in order. I all I never listen because you know I just take it all in a surface. Yeah. That's enough for me. I see it as a painter. So it was really hard for me to even grasp this overview because all these films I just took in and then when you read a lot of things about oh it was difficult the structure is difficult and it's very daring and, and i never saw it of anything like this actually this time around i'm surprised that i find the film uh, films a lot weirder and it's obviously because i'm looking <laughs> at it in a different way and i never had sort of that that view on it and so yeah like you said you gave this great sort of um overview that i never had and he's been playing the tent for you tony now you can put your thoughts up on the screen exactly it's 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 uh it's you you can sort of go in and out here at any point uh and we are sort of falling a little bit victim in the west of canonizing people or in general every artist has to deal with it suzuki i always feel is a little bit worse or much worse than the people say, and a lot better than people say. So as an artist, <laughs> yeah. that's a good thing. It's very extreme. It's not mediocre. Nothing is mediocre. So it's sort of, even in his failures, he's sort of triumphing in a weird way, like only an artist could. It, and that's hard to do in film, because usually you get two or three of those, and then it's done. But he sort of gets to work through those horrible moments, like man with a shotgun, where it should have been over. I mean, this should have been the decline of like, <laughs> mm. no, and, and he gets to work through it and gets to work out his sort of demons and experiment because of this Japanese unique five studio like machine just just just. 50s and 60s that just keeps adding coals to the fire uh, coals as the theme here and and yeah it, it's something that is is really unique and and like you said the the fact that he could sort of fail at university and get an assistant ad job and he at, at shochiko right away and like Ozu and Naruse are at the moment there and he sort of gets to breathe that air but of course they hate them because they're the young guys but but it just the fact he just like fucks off while he's there too like he yeah, that, he gets this incredible job and then just like fucks off but something is in the air and something is in the DNA that he manages because he portrays himself obviously that's part of the myth building that yeah. he himself does he sort of uh, uh, kind of gets rid of the tracks a little bit. He's so sly and so smart. And we can see things later in, in the fighting elegy where he uses those moments, those beautiful melodrama moments that he just can do as a sleight of hand because he's watched the masters do it. And so it's, it's, it's really cool that, um, and unique in, in world history and why I always respond to Japanese cinema so much because you do get to see this close-knit community in these individual studio styles, but also the same actors reoccurring in different roles and interplaying. All of a sudden, in the next movie, you know, there's a nobody that comes in that was was the main character, and then it, it's it's just this really close web. And the more you watch it, the more it becomes like thick and confusing and wild and weird. And Suzuki is sort of one of the most 
forebearers of this. But I also think what always we're missing from the Western criticism is that a lot of his wild and crazy style and the color coding and the things has been done by other directors before and yeah. while he's working. So I hopefully we can put some context around this because I read this nowhere. And uh, well, it's also interesting. It always this way the story gets told is that branded to kill ended his career, except Suzuki doesn't say that. Suzuki says tattooed life is when he started to get in trouble. We'll talk about it later. I think the movie that mm. ended his career was Carmen from Kawachi. And there's a lot of reasons I think that, but when we sort of dig into the individual films, I think you're right. He's a guy who does a lot of myth building about himself. That's particularly like, uh, like dismissive of the seriousness of everything that's happening. You know, like he famously introduced Canto Wander at a screening uh, in at sometime in the early 2000s and was like, I don't know why you guys want to watch it. It's just a regular Yakuza movie, you know, you right. And then at the same time, he's very, very much like any artist that then nobody talks about him and he gets he's really resentful against Imamura. Yeah. He, he says all this shit about Fellini like he can't keep it from he, and he still at his old age. He still had he he was not cool about these things and he thought he was a better filmmaker than Imamura and so you can really feel what comes out later that he has so much else to say and he uses a lot of the Nikatsu restrictions as a kind of shield as well where he's like oh you know I didn't have time to do all those things and we see later what happens when he has enough time to do it and I yeah. sort of I appreciate the restrictions a lot more uh, John what was your first uh, adventure into Suzuki what was your first hit that you took Oh, that's perfect. It goes right to what I was about to say, which is that, Tony, I appreciate that you refuse to do just one movie or just, you know, one trilogy yes. of films, because this is definitely a filmmaker that you need the whole work. You need to, like, experience that work from one to another, because he's not like you see a Kurosawa film, Hidden Fortress or Seven Samurai. I think I get it. He's a mat. You know, this is a masterpiece for me. I saw Tokyo Drifter was the first movie I saw, and I thought, I, I don't get it. You know, I it's it's I get that there's some cool gimmicks and weird artistry here, but I don't understand why I don't get Suzuki from watching this one film. And it wasn't until watching it this time when I go back from the beginning and go all the way through that you understand it's a progression, it's an evolution for him, that he's working up to this very specifically. And obviously what we're talking about is putting emotion on film aesthetically, you know, that he is just ramping up everything. He's ramping up the performances. He's ramping up the the colors of the film and the uh, the gimmicks that he's putting into it are all very specific to pushing against this kind of Japanese formalism that, you know, I think uh, you could say that, you know, Joe Shishido is, you know, sort of a, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, he's an ascendant of Mufune, um, um, right? The idea that you're not this, you know, behaved uh, polite kind of person. You are someone who is going to shout everything and every single emotion is going to just be laid bare for everybody. And I think that that's uh, uh, pretty much what Suzuki is trying to do as well with every single performance is just put to the nth degree. And as you see one movie to the next, as it moves from kind of the, and Chris is going to talk in a minute about sort of the diff four different sort of Suzuki films, um, but as he moves from the kind of more standard youth gang films and Yakuza movies, he's moving further and further away from what's expected of him. 
and what is sort of, I guess, this Japanese idea of like what's expected of you. So of course he's going to end up getting fired for doing that because he is constantly pushing away from that more and more. When you understand that, you understand these films so much more. And when you get into Tokyo Drifter right before the end of his, the first part of his career, you're like, oh my God, I get it. I finally understand what this film is about. It does yeah, ramp but- up. Yeah. yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, he then he then gets to because it's almost like, you know, Hitchcock remaking his own movies or something. He gets to explore a different aspect. He goes in three or four times. Even it's not one remake. It's almost always a trilogy. And like well, you said, yeah. there's 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 six Taisho films, which I like the first three much better than the later ones. But it's sort of he gets to reexamine things and then take a break and then come back to it. And that's so fascinating. And something I had never put together is that the, the gaps in between where it jumps and I would always assume oh it's clear the bastard comes and then barn on the cross stars comes but it's like three years in between and you're like oh wow and then it builds eventually to the fighting elegy and you sort of see that only in this dense condensed form if you see them apart I always realized each individual film leaves you wanting a little bit more you're almost like ah i don't know that ending didn't stick well but when you see them all together you appreciate that he hits those different tones and 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 a, a garish one would be followed by a completely beautiful somber colored one and then well, absolutely. Let me, um, the three films he's talking about are fighting elegy which is one of the the last films he made for nakatsu which is generally seen as one of his masterpieces if you ask people for a half dozen of his films that are masterpieces that's one of them and he has two that precede it that are very similar which are um stories of bastards born under across stars and the bastard those are both based on um coming of age novels by the same uh novelist both of those they actually, I believe, are part of the same series. They Toko are. Kon, yeah, he's a yeah. famous novelist, and he he also wrote Carmen from Cavacci. So that's yes. sort of a trilogy, but not really a trilogy because that could be part of a flesh trilogy. <laughs> and so it becomes very malleable. You can move in and out of these things. And yet, a fighting elegy is by far my favorite Suzuki, bar none. I mean, there's a it's huge great. gap after that. I because, watched it this morning because I was yeah, saving it for very last before we yeah, talked. Yeah, it's, it's and rightly so. I think he that's uh, he's never hit that refinement afterwards again and that's because Kanito Shindo wrote the script and it, it's sort of it, it's a different class all of a sudden he gets to have work with good material but, uh, but all of- three of the films are about there's a teenage student who's in second middle school you know our version of high school who hates it and just sort of violently revolts against his role as being a student in a military academy in a militarized school during the Taisho era sorry go on that's the yeah, basic setup. It's just fighting and getting into fighting and not fucking is what yeah, they're all exactly. about. Too. It's like it's like repression of sexuality leads to violence and then later the rise of fascism and all this stuff. But what it's great is never wagging the finger. They're sort of based on these Toko Khan, who is like a gregarious kind of Bacchus of a writer. And he he sort of stylizes himself. They are semi-autobiographical youth novels of him and how he would mm-hmm. like to behave and you know it didn't really happen as that so it's almost like a tom sawyer uh uh uh, model or there's a famous ludwig thoma which is the bavarian version of that lausbubengeschichten which is a great stylized youth uh story who's been filmed many times too so only german-speaking audience unfortunately but it leads to sort of then later in a perverseness maybe ferris bueller or somebody like this because in the beginning that character is really hateable and the bastards he's not a nice he's not a cool kid but in the fighting elegy he's sort of 
re-examines that. That's not based on the Tokokon book, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's great because it almost, if I'd seen those at that age, you, it really makes you susceptible to these influences. You really can see how you could motivate yourself in leading this grand life and stylizing yourself as a grown-up person, reading, you know, Strindberg and, and smoking and being really, uh, like, I would have been so ready to go in any direction. And you can see how these influences can shape a human being. So you can go into a, a book club, you can go into the middle class, you can go into fascism, you can go into the boys' school club. And 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 it's so uh, under it's 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 brilliant because it, it never it's effortless and and sharp and there's no fat to it and the scenes sort of are short and precise and it's sort of Suzuki I think at the very height so this is the breaking point sort of 63 is always held as the watershed year but uh, uh, like. Yeah, we should probably go more chronologically here, but that's sort of one chunk and it shows you how you can grab these kind of chunks out of this big piece of filet and, and sort yeah. of look closer at these little trilogies that are very malleable too, because you could grab them. And like you said, with the Thai show later, you can include the Yakuza films, the early three, Flowers and the Angry Waves and Katawandra, which bleed yeah. also, they, they are in that period. So well, that's why um, I think fighting LG is a perfect thing to bring up before we go back, because it's a perfect example of a movie that is undeniably fantastic. You know, it's just, it's a fun movie. It's, it's got a lot of ideas. It's just fantastic. It's perfectly made. Um, but it doesn't define him to watch it just by, just by itself. Yeah. It's not going to give you the idea of who Suzuki is until you go back and watch his early films and realize he's kind of going back to that era. He's kind of picking up some of the ideas from his youth films uh, and also then later from his war films, you know, because it's leading up into uh, him being sent off into the Sino-Japanese conflict. Uh, so, yeah, going back to uh, Underworld Beauty, Tony, was the first one that you told us you felt was like an essential Suzuki to watch. Why do you think that's a good place to start? It's yeah, it's the, it's uh, 1958, and he that's the first he directs as Seijin Suzuki. So he was born Saitaro. So he was not. Uh, he, that's sort of a, always a kind of when an artist uses his uh, a, a name, he start, steps into the persona of yeah. Seijin Suzuki. He's sort of uh, a nom de guerre or, uh, or something. You and know what he, it reminds me of is you know um, Dan Arbus took photos for like years and years. And then one day she suddenly labeled a photo one on the back of it. And then the next one was two and the next one after she had been working for like 15 years or whatever. And I think of the name change as that as he goes like, okay, now start. This is actually the start. <laughs> Very much so, because as a painter, I've, I've led this whole other life. I had the reverse of the Suzuki career. I had sort of, I appreciate the pushback of the structure much more because I used to work really free and in the art world and they kicked me out. And so I started <laughs> to then work in, the, in Nikatsu and I'm very happy at Nikatsu. So, but it's because I've sort of seen that side. It is really important. The first painting you make is not so difficult. But the second one is crucial. And sort of we see that in all these things. So now do you fall into the trap of repeating yourself? Do you want to make one like this? Do you listen to other voices? And so for Suzuki to do Underworld Beauty, which is so sophisticated and refined, it's great. Like he starts writing scripts early on and you can see he's not coming at, at just an assistant director. He's watched all these guys. He's been in AD for many years, but he's also writing scripts, which get made in 55 already by his yeah. mentor. And so he comes in and he steps into this. He has done six movies before or seven six or seven movies before and he sort of starts 
hitting all the right notes. He's giving us no backstory to the guy. It's all style. It's all the man with no name, essentially. It's like, it's all costume. Who is this guy? And it starts, as I read from my old notes here from the early 2000s, it says, manhole, underground canal, great start, Melville, more Grisby than USA. So now we, you guys know what I'm talking about. I have to figure out. <laughs> I know exactly I know what, what you're talking, talking about. about. My <laughs> first note for it is, Robbery, escape, sewer, literally underworld. Yes, that's my exactly. first note for it. <laughs> and this is that's a great start because it, it puts you right in the mindset. This guy is planning. He's a professional. He has the gun there. He has, and we don't need to know much more. I'm, I'm, I, I love that. I, I need to go be plunged into the action, and 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 it's 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 all style. But he's setting up scenes that will cash in later, and this is sort of missing from later movies here he, it still feels he has the time to do that sort of thing we see the boss's lair the spa that he runs the the villain very clearly so in the end when the the showdown happens the architecture we know what's happening we know where everybody is we know the 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 that you have to go up these steps to get to the office and mm -hmm. so this is stuff that's missing later on which gets often then uh, by the critics hailed as revolutionary because you know the jump cuts and stuff it's often like you said because he doesn't have time to shoot he cuts in camera and sort of oh damn we're missing the scene so let's jump cut and sort of yeah uh, he knows how to cover the tracks masterfully but here it's like a just a real slim mean awesome noir that he he, he starts off we with. knew that crocodile's on the wall oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that crocodile on the wall says so much about the villain right we give the villain uh eccentricities that comes we see in the best bond movies we see in the best spaghetti westerns the villain is important and just that crocodile says so much it's it's like it gives a menace to the whole backdrop and and we see later over and over i i marvel at when you analyze the shots did he really plan this or did he make use of it improvising it because you know in carmen there's these great cross beams from the nightclub. And when we see the camera angled low and shooting mm -hmm. above, all of a sudden she's framed by that giant X behind her. It's so so is he just using that set or is it just, oh, wow, let's shoot it like this because I didn't plan this, which I always suspect. But he's using this very free form style that we, we hear about a lot. He improvises with actors. He lets the costumes decide which I love that I think that's really important. He goes formally into the characters. So he, he lets them pick their hats and their jackets and sort of goes in and that determines so much of the character. And he is a great example. I mean, this guy's just a black fedora and a really cool sort of members only blouson jacket. And it's very <laughs> jarring because that's not the Yakuza style. It's not American gangster. It's much more like French a version of yes. an American gangster. But, but not it's Japanese. easy to see. No, it's not. It's easy to see. Not, I agree with you that it's not American. It's easy to see Latrue and Grisby in this. It's a very Jacques Becker movie. And I yeah. think in general, Melville and Jacques Becker are better touchstones for Suzuki than American noir and things like that. They're both international takes on the American crime film that sort of take the American crime film and pull it apart in a lot of ways and reassemble it into something else. But go on. Yeah, exactly. And here it becomes sort of th that happens usually in a very straightforward way. Like we we see the crossbreeding, the classic example of, you know, Red Harvest and then Yuyimbo and then Fistful of Dollars and then going back into the American culture. But here it's sort of um, 
it's he does it really effortless because you, you we we feel it as Jacques Becker lovers or something, but it it translates so well into the Japanese onsen, the spa, and the coals, and all these little symbols that we see are yeah. still really there. It's it doesn't feel like later on a man with a shotgun when they're sort of wearing like little tiny cowboy costumes and it's sort <laughs> oh of really God, like that, what the fuck? I mean, this the is really hats are absurd. <laughs> it's crazy. Are absurd in that movie. It's like they have never seen a a cowboy hat before. Oh my God! Yeah, the chin strap. <laughs> <laughs> on him. I will throw in one American filmmaker's name, though, who kind of gets uh, brought up every once in a while with Suzuki is Sam Fuller. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Uh, and Underworld Beauty. Uh, Chris was saying, you know, just as an introduction, that, you know, uh, this quote from Suzuki saying, you know, uh, characters are, you know, will die. Or they, what's the exact quote, Chris? If you want to sing, then sing. If you want, if you want to, to sing, die, then, then sing. Die. If you want to die, then die. That's so Sam Fuller to me. The idea of like basing the narrative on character emotions and how they feel. Oh, and 100%. Early as one thing that I also think gets overlooked with the Sam Fuller connection too, Suzuki has a couple movies about newspaper men, which is something I associate with Sam Fuller, of course. But Absolute the distrust and in, 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 to the tabloid media that was rising post-war in Japan and sort of the sensationalism. But if you look at House of Bamboo, I mean, it's like 1955 and... <laughs> From the opening shot all the way through, it's Suzuki. You can make Marcus pin side by sides till Kingdom Come. I mean, it's blue screen doors. It's Mount Fuji frames. I mean, it's take aim at the police van at every single yeah. point. And the showdown of this kinetic moving set mm -hmm. where the gunfight happens, the train yard in, in, in take aim of the police van. I mean, it's Sam Fuller. Uh, through and through. I never thought of other connections that I thought through you, Chris, like Fassbender, lighting of Lola and stuff yeah. that we see later. I, because I'm not a big Fassbender guy, but that's sort of your podcast, what it opens doors. I can always listen to you guys about everything and I know it, 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 it opens something up and unlocks something. And all of a sudden I'm looking at all these these sets i'm like this is crazy suzuki like uh just like even the westerns later when we talk about those or the the, the shoddiness of the sauerkraut sets or something like <laughs> it translates and there are other filmmakers and even in japan two filmmakers i quickly want to mention they'll be brought up later as well is uh, okamoto kihachi okamoto and mm -hmm. konishikawa konishikawa because he's sort of the art house a darling but he's so daring i mean he has mm -hmm. no style he sort of jumps everywhere like suzuki and there's so many parallels between those guys and okamoto because he he really taps into that comedy or or, or or that 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 sophisticated comedy that we talk about in fighting elegy okamoto does over and over again and there's sort of lots of parallels with the assassin movies that come out later and uh, 67 where all that comes to a heat so suzuki is the child of many directors who are working at the same time the house of bamboo reference is funny because right before we started recording uh, chris compared michitaro uh uh mizushima yeah, uh to uh to robert ryan yeah, yeah, yeah. he's 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 the Japanese Robert Ryan. There's no Absolutely. Question. And 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 all those scenes of the the bosses meeting uh, um, sort of the American gangsters, the way that the crowd scenes, the way it's framed. I mean, it's 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 breathtaking. Like and 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 I never thought of that until you you're really forced to examine it. You know, I yeah. House of Bamboo is in many ways it's frustrating and stuff, but you can appreciate all those those sets and when you go in specifically to look at those frames again you i mean it blows your mind you're like oh my god it's well this is this is something i wanted to ask you uh you know you've you sort of started to open the conversation about it a lot of these films there was specifically the nakatsu action as it was known 
as, which was intended the studio to imitate Western films uh, and specifically why he makes Man with a Shotgun, which is coming in for some some hits here, mm-hmm. is that they he was told to make a borderless Western, that Nikatsu wanted to make Westerns and get into the Western business and find a way to do that in Japan. What do you think his relationship is to borderlessness? Do you what do you think Suzuki thinks about being told to make American style movies when he clearly hates America in a lot of his films? Yeah, I think it's it, we have the same in Germany. So the Americans become the occupying force. You're dealing with a lot of trauma and and difficult issues after the war. All the men are gone. The wives have become prostitutes. You've got this crazy guilt. You're growing up in this situation, which all unloads in 68 and the really violent student movements all around. So you have that even more in Germany than in Japan, because there's a much more it's it's a greater crime. But there's also a much more open discussion about these things. Japan is always running up against this close close lipness it's 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 honor it's tradition but this Italy, Japan, and Germany have both been exploited in the same ways, which we see happen or develop in the fighting elegy very much, that there's this kind of link to the greater past, this fantasy of a of a bigger, older mythology. And so you have to kind of clear out those drawers. And that's why we get a lot of this new wave cinema, uh, specifically from the three evil allied forces. Italy does it with great humor, and uh, they sort of worm their way out of it. Germany does it like, you know, it breaks it wide open and show me your wounds it's like Joseph yeah. Boyce and all this stuff it's 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 very German and the Jap- Japanese are much more playful than they're giving credit to and so is Suzuki he's so sly he's such a fox so where the American criticism is always he's not straight up um hating it because you you can always tell it gave him this freedom he clearly admires a lot of filmmakers and music and he's a very cool guy he's a very young guy so he's clearly soaking up that culture and you see all those influences coming from abroad but at the same time he feels his kind of duty is after the war to clear out those cobwebs and show everybody look guys even in the yakuza films this has all been leading to this militarism this corruption this is how these deals are made this is how sort of the logging contracts have been set up we've always been duped by our own government so don't only shoot against the west but also these western critiques are critiques about japan yeah, the, the love of guns, the fetishism of the the, the fetishism the of the flags. Yeah, exactly. The, and 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 even when we have these borderless westerns in the man with the shotgun, the setup is so great, and it's a classic Japanese setup. The mountain town enter the village. It's uh, and it becomes sort of the sheriff. That's new, but it's very much a samurai movie. It's a very much a jidaigeki setup. You encounter these bandits in these villages, and yeah. then sort of, and that's why it's such an uneasy fit, and also why it's hilarious and funny and. And, and cool to see but um they are yeah he always walks the line i always find he walks the line in this criticism it's never so overt and because we can't pin him down in the interviews because he's so evasive in what how he discusses himself and his roles he gives you one answer one time and then he totally disregards yeah. as uh as something else and so i i always look at it as a, a lot more playful but of That's course, true. the context of the time must have been jarring. I mean, must have been. I mean, especially in Japan. Even when I lived there, certain topics were still taboo, and 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 that was, you know, 30, 40 years later. So it must have been really jarring. But I I never quite buy that story either because I see so many Japanese films which happen exactly at the same time and. 
they don't get the Suzuki outrage treatment yeah. and sort of it's, 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 uh, well, I think it's, I think it's Carmen from Koachi is really what I think it is when we get to that one. Uh, because it's a direct attack at Nakatsu and what Nakatsu was becoming that it's very much like if you made a movie about your bosses in which they're sleazy scumbag pornographers that are, you know, basically no better than pimps, you would probably get fired, you know? (laughs) And, uh, but it's also funny. You mentioned man with the shotgun a few times. This just made me have the thought, which is that one thing that I always think about, you see man with a shotgun and he doesn't know what to do with the landscapes. He constantly has the characters in like fields of flowers and like carefully cultivated natural settings. And I was thinking, one thing I always think about as an American, I don't feel American because I hate the out of doors. I hate being outside and hiking. I don't like bugs and all of that, but I love gardens. And that's a very Eastern sensibility. The preference for gardens to wild out of doors is a very like giant East meets West thing. And you see that problem in Man with a Shotgun where Westerns are all about giant empty vistas. Can you think of a single flower in a single Western you've ever seen in a garden? They're not, they're antithetical. And he keeps trying to refashion all of the wild spaces and man with a shotgun into gardens. Don't even be the person to ask, have you seen a flower in a Western before? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure some of the crazy Italian ones, but, but well, I mean, American. so far from, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they are so far from, like you said, there's so such wild interpretations again, that they are, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, it doesn't anything come to mind, but you're right. It's interesting to say about that. I see, I see it very much like, much less like a Western American Western, much less uh, than Italian Western. It ends up being a sauerkraut Western. It ends up being a yeah. Karl May movie because these these things were shot in Yugoslavia. So it's like what? It's already jarring. All the costumes are off, and this I think it's the perfect example of when you re- rely solely on style and the surface, what we said before, how the costumes determine the character. This is when style goes wrong. If you just rely yeah. on the character, because if the hat doesn't look right, you are off on the wrong start. And he sort of wears these funny ski pants with his shotgun is also so fucking wimpy. It's like, it, it looks it's like a toy it's a gun. Yeah, it's like the, I wrote, wrote like down, I wrote down toy guns, a question mark when I was making notes. It's, yeah, got, they all it's look got like to be for bird hunting. I, I yeah. bet you couldn't <laughs> kill a human with that gun. Yeah. No, they look like kids cowboy outfits from the 50s, but grown-ups wearing them. Yeah. And it's it's really funny because they look like uh, the little kids from high and low. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it's 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 exactly the but but yeah, but sort of the, they haven't grown into their they, they're still the same costume, but they grew up around them. So it's 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 a little bit like Whitey, Fassbender's Whitey. Oh my god, yes, like, yes, yes. It, that's all like I thought the, about the, watching that film. The, yeah, exactly. There's everybody awkward entering. It's a little bit porno, it has that porno aesthetic to it, that early porno because of those western swing door sets and the yeah. theme porno. And it's also, but it's it, it, it's really interesting because um, there are a number of Japanese Westerns, which are full Westerns with Joe Shichido and with Ten, uh, Ken Takakura. They are yeah. like in wet and, and they never addressed it. Joe Japanese. Shishido was his nickname was, was with Joe the ace was from, yeah. was from Western. He, he shoots, He's most he famous shoots, as a. Yeah. A quick call, uh, a quick draw Joe. That's in yeah. 61. 
uh, and sort of it's it's interesting that there are a lot more back and forth than we realize in the West. And there's a lot of like this kind of rockabilly later Elvis, the rambling guitarist and all this stuff bleeds into it. So that's such an interesting time, because as you mentioned, it's like the, the West infiltrates Japan in a weird in a weird way. Clearly, it's there there is there's this need of the young crowd to imitate the west to be part of the western culture but there's also such a deep resentment against it so when i i was on a bus in in on the outside in, in a southern little port town and i was talking way too loud like i usually don't do and i was talking to my girlfriend or screaming or something and this guy kept turning around and i ignored it i just i was speaking english and i didn't realize it was such a problem i was being a little bit uh, too loud and he just which the japanese never do he turned around and yelled at me like furious like beat red in the face and just told me to shut down i was like very apologetic and shut the phone off told my my girlfriend i had to go and sat down i was apologizing to him in japanese and he sort of was very gruff and he was very proud that the bus saw that he asserted himself against this yeah. american loud uh douchebag backpacker <laughs> which i wasn't of course i was a very <laughs> sensitive uh, european but it's it's interesting when you see everywhere baseball stadiums and hot dog and combini style american baseballs caps and i mean the, the culture is so ingrained by now in japan and and it's so um that it yeah this this kind of dichotomy is, is hard to understand even when I think you live there for a while i think the interesting comparison there is him to imamura yeah. because imamura in his films is part of the actual world of the film that he is seeing, you know, Western infiltration as hell, you know, as like literally the end of Japanese culture. Whereas it's a little more complicated in Suzuki because like you said, these films, uh, he's actually adapting an aesthetic and his characters are adapting a Western aesthetic in their rock and roll and their uh, their clubs and their, their motorcycles and things like that. And they're trying to get like that kind of American cool 50s and 60s sort of vibe going. And it's ruinous to them in a way that, you know, to imitate that you know, leads down their own road to ruin, but not in a way that it's part of the plot, just in a way that is sort of inherent in those movies. But he's also got a mandate in there. To, to make it cool. He's mm. he's making youth in revolt pictures. He's making sort of sons of rebel without a cause, which are popular in America at the same time in the late fifties that he's getting his start. And you're you're going to have jazz and jukeboxes and hot rods and sort of and you know Coleman teen Hawkins. melodrama. Exactly, Coleman Hawkins to be cool and to appeal to the youth. He's not making it for a theoretical middle aged angry Japanese businessman on a bus who wants you to shut the fuck up. He's making it for the kids that are hanging out front of the jukeboxes every day too. That actually leads me into, let me just real quick sort of towards the top here, uh, say that, uh, mention that he has four basic kinds of movies that he makes uh, throughout his career. He makes what we've, what we've started out with was the uh, Yakuza movies, the, the gangster movies um, with underworld beauty. That's, that's the most prominent one. That's the ones he's most famous for. If you mention him to American audiences, that's generally what they'll think of. That is not the, the most prevalent kind of movie he made. The movie he made far and away more than others were youth and revolt pictures. He made movies about troubled youths adjusting to the new world, to, to gangs, to militarism, to school responsibilities, to the changing world. You know, it's very much 
a reflection of sort of the AIP pictures of the era, you know, that these are, instead of being like, you know, uh, the wild one, it's, it's the Japanese version of that, whatever that might be. Um, so that's the second category. And that's the kind of movie he made. If you had to just by sheer bulk of it, those have to outnumber the others. There's just so many of them. And some of those become uh, Yakuza pictures and, and bleed in to that. You know, there's definitely crossover between these categories. Um, then he has uh, the Taisho trilogy that we mentioned, which are these ghost stories. They're these metaphysical uh, explorations of art and time and space and spirit. You know, um, they are very, very, very strange movies. And I say that as someone who does not throw around the phrase strange at all. Like whatever your movie of thinking of that's strange, these movies are stranger, just from a hundred different different angles and approaches. Yeah, because they're not strange entertaining. They're just art installation strange. They're, they're philosophically later, strange. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're just not... like, they represent a worldview that, a tiny fraction of human beings might agree with. <laughs> and it's such an opposite. You feel like after just churning out these, just these techniques and having these short hands in style, now he goes just the opposite way. Yeah. But yeah, then, I'm very curious to hear, hear your thoughts later because I reject them wildly. So, so it's- Oh, really? It's, it's, yeah, yeah, I hate them. Like, I love Kagero more than any of his other movies. And that's amazing. But, yeah, but, but I would think so, but I would but think so I would because- never convince anyone they're wrong to hate it. No, but I know yeah. exactly, and I was talking to John before because I can't force myself to look at these I fall asleep every single yeah. time but I said right away I don't think that's bad he may want I said to. no but I said right away I'm Chris has a different idea because you are a filmmaker yeah. and that is very different because you realize what it means to be on a set and sort of wrangle poetry out of a moment with actors and how difficult that is and what an achievement these movies are when you sit and concentrate and you They're take them in incredible artistic yeah, achievements exactly. Kageroza is jaw dropping how well directed and put together it is. Exactly. But, I, so that, but I fucking get it if you hate it. I fucking get it. I hate it. I hate it because <laughs> I, for, but it's interesting how we bring our personal history to into all these movies, how- because Let me just say them. real quick, the yeah, last- finish the, the categories. Last, last category, <laughs> very simple. It's uh, his women's pictures, his suffering women's pictures, like Gate of Flesh, Story of a Prostitute, Carmen from Koichi. He has, uh, this is like a subcategory. You might even be able to fit Underworld Beauty into it. Although the Underworld Beauty is more of an antagonist than other things and also more of a youth and revolt as well but it's almost a requirement for japanese filmmakers right to have yeah, their yeah. their women suffering pictures yeah but these are a very strong this is probably his his second most famous grouping of movies gate of flesh definitely looms large in his uh in his um filmography and as much as people uh associate him uh with um with joe shishido uh, I really heavily associate him uh, with Yumiko Nugawa, who plays Maya in Gate of Flesh. Yeah, to me, oh, she's really, and is the leading story of Prostitute and Carmen Capaci. I find her really, and turns up in like uh, the one of the Bastards movies and stuff like that. She has a few smaller roles and things. So I'm going to get use this opportunity, Chris, to get us a little bit back on the chronological. Absolutely. Uh, cycle we were going <laughs> by, by pointing out a movie that Tony uh, put on his list that is does not really fit into any of these mm -hmm. categories necessarily. It's in my miscellaneous. Year, yeah, from the same year of Undy, Underworld Beauty, it's Voice Without a Shadow, which is a film that starts off like a Hitchcockian thriller and then suddenly has a twist 
and becomes a different kind of Hitchcockian thriller, sort of just right in the middle of the movie. It's not about what you think it's going to be about. But Tony, I was curious uh, why you decided to include this one uh, with uh, the other films. Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I always liked it. I saw it ages ago. I haven't rewatched it, but it has a really cool middle chunk that, um, that I always love. It, the setup is sort of clear, but it goes into gambling or so, one of these things. But I, I, I loved you guys' episodes on the um, famous Japanese mystery writer, um, Itagawa, Itagawa Rampo. Rampo. And yeah. it has this whole story of somebody watching in an attic, becoming, being silent in a house and being in the house or becoming mm -hmm. the chair, which we see in Black Lizard and all these other cool Japanese movies. But here has that giant middle section, which reminded me so much of like observing from above the ongoings of a house. And I always, I, I love that. Usually the Suzuki pictures, especially the Yakuza ones, they have a, not the great ones, but the sort of mediocre one. They, they have this giant sag in the middle way. Sort of, it takes uh, the Yakuza. It's a, it's a it's a problem with all yakuza movies but here we get i always love when a movie finds a different kind of engine halfway through and it kicks mm -hmm. it back into it and yeah. it sort of goes into something completely different you're like what 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 is this angle then it sort of in the end it fizzles out again as i remember but it becomes love... goddamn ridiculous even by his standards and yeah that last 10 minutes is i can't like... really remember that one yeah i haven't well really it's like they're like it. showing how they killed Joe Shishido, who's the like bully Yakuza, who's yeah. blackmailing everybody. And it's like a series of flashbacks and they're making them inhale coal and they're moving the body around and they've all got these ludicrous alibis. And it's just filmed through like broken mirrors and flashbacks and double exposures. Oh, and it's, yes, it's yes, truly it the... like, what, what, what are you even talking about here? Yeah, Sage? that's true. It has the, it has the great, um, it's like they're coming up from the tub. It's almost like, a, yeah. it's and, she, like... and she fans the coal into his mouth to yeah. Make yeah, yeah, it yeah, seem yeah. like he inhaled the coal when he was at the coal yard. So he wasn't dead when he got hit by the car. It's just like of convolutions for it, Suzuki. It does this have is though, it does have one of my all-time favorite uh flourishes though by Suzuki, which is very subtle in the film. Um, the tilted flashback. It's where scene mm -hmm. where a person is, is remembering something, the camera just mid-shot just goes whoomp and just like turns into yeah. a tilted shot, and then the entire flashback every single shot is tilted. I think that's a yeah. He's also masking. Amazing. I remember some cool masking shots from left and right where she has the Hanaya mask in the background, this looming demon, and then sort of there's a mm -hmm. city left and right masking yeah. by. But she remembers she's in the picture in picture. Really cool early flourishings of like formally playing with stuff. Um, that, that that is really cool. Yeah, I remember. But sort of, I I was curious because um, yeah, you're right. It doesn't really. It goes into sort of a mystery. Genre I really like this movie. I've got to say. I know yeah, it sounded like I was making fun of it. No, I no. No, it's like awesome. I that's I, I included it because I have I have really good memories, but I um um yeah, I didn't really go back to it uh, on 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 some of the viewings because you know the ones like you said there are there are some really amazing achievements in between like the war picture and the, but I there's sort of a lot of Japanese subgenres of Manchuria pictures that end up with prostitutes. A lot of people make that yeah. movie. Not as not like Suzuki, but I don't usually go back to them. Like out, Desperado Outpost, a lot of cool, awesome ones with Nakadai and, and Mifune and, and action. But there's something about that setting. Or I, that's all said in the human condition. Once you go through that, yeah. you're done with those. You're like, I'm done with those. Yeah. That setting, it's so brutal. The windswept landscapes and the sort of the aesthetics of those 
Chinese sets, which are never Chinese, but sort of filmed in Hokkaido. And you get that aesthetic so clearly. And they, they, they have, they bring with them this own set of rules. It's almost like a, like you said, not just a Suzuki subgenre, but like you said, it bleeds off into so many filmmakers, all these, that um, you don't go back to these as much. But other than that, which I really was curious about you guys' um, thoughts about Age of Nudity, because that hardly gets oh mentioned. Oh my I think God, this, exactly. I love this one. I had not seen it till you said see it. Yeah. This is like my new, my new favorite one. It's not a great movie, but this is, to explain it to people, it's Seijin Suzuki does Little Rascals. It's like a criminal <laughs> outlaw gang of kids who hang out in a clubhouse and are just fucking shits to everybody <laughs> they are just like little rotten jerks who create mayhem everywhere they go and like but it's like there's a fat kid with coke bottle glasses who's like in a wading pool on a beach because he's so messy when he eats you know like this is the kind of humor in this movie and there's and just it's, like it's, great it's, scenes like where they're pulling everybody's hats off as they ride by on the oh scooters yeah. and just throwing everyone's hats it's so fun and it is anarchic in a way that you feel teeming in Seijin Suzuki's movies that rarely gets expressed directly. Again, when I say nihilism, this is a movie that really doesn't have a moral and doesn't believe in anything, Age of Nudity, except sort of the like, again, the, if you want to sing, then sing. If you want to die, then die. There's a kind of mayhem to it that reminds me of the great silent comedies, that reminds me of uh, of Laurel and Hardy and just that like what's the plan for this picture oh we're gonna tear down this house what's what why oh, we'll figure it out you know it just has that kind of energy to it it's so energetic a movie which is great about it but yeah and it's it's really unique in those delinquent Japanese movies it really stands out it's quite special what he managed to achieve here because it's almost like one of my favorite movies growing up with um, La Guerre des Boutons which is uh, Yves Robert movie oh, which yeah. uh, War of the Buttons one of my favorite movies and what he does in this this comes much later it's a 62 uh, and he he manages to imbue each kid with such a uh, like little rascal personality like you said each has a an archetype the way they wear their motorcycle hats with the goggles and the, the fat kid with the glass and even later at the beach scene with these awesome shades that they're all wearing it's sort of <laughs> it's like you could watch a whole series of these kids go through their adventures and their hideout is cool and Bozuki and Hidari which is one of the uh, Kurosawa Gumi uh um, he he plays y y Yohai in the Sam Samurai with the horrible mm -hmm. horse that Mifune keeps making yeah. fun of, the really old man. He's sort of the bum in this and he sort of leads those kids on, he is the philosopher on the hill while these kids are living in the squalor, breaking into houses and they kind of sort of spend time with him and he sort of kicks a can around with them and they get some kind of insight from yeah, them. Yeah, it's yeah. all shorthand of these type of movies, but it's so great because it goes by like a breeze. It goes by, like you said, you throw up the hats and that motorcycle race in the end and it's it's i i really love that one because it's so light and it doesn't feel like it's weighed down by these stylistic even though it's analysis. so heavy it's so heavy i actually yeah. wrote down where the little girl it's light while being super duper heavy the girl has the line my mother always told me to hurry up and die she said i shouldn't have oh, been yeah, born hard so i yeah. always wondered if it would be better if i just died but then Kanji, she says it was the a leader smile. of the group no but yeah, then he says, so, but Kanji yeah. told me it was better to live if you don't live how can you wear a nice wedding dress and yeah, it's yeah. so innocent and sweet while being like the darkest, darkest shit you've, shit, you've yeah. ever heard you know what it's i think obvious comps uh, obvious comps for it are um Les Mistons and 400 Blows, yes, which are the yes, same year. 
that both have the same, I don't think he possibly could have seen those before he made this movie, but he turned them around so quick. So who knows? They have a same sort of like, this is so much fun and youth and energetic. And it's also so dark. <laughs> yeah, because it's sort of the youth of uh, Joseph Campbell of youth, because these characters are around the world at the same time, like you said, France and, and, and foreign, uh, foreign blows and all these youth movies. But they're also classic Japanese archetypes. Like if you read the Musashi novels and all these things, these kids pop up over and over again. These kind of the, the lost boys. The yeah, Peter my other Pans. note is it's like fucking deranged Ozu. Is yeah, like yeah, my other yeah. note about it. Exactly, because it 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 does. It's not weighed down. What I meant with light is by being dark. Is it's not weighed down by this. The, the, these Boy Scout movies later are weighed down mm. by the super cheap morality that we all get. Like the super, uh, be nice yeah. to your mother and do this stuff. It's so boring to wander through this while we're watching. We get it already. But here he doesn't have that. Those kids are just like they they're in and out too. Like you know, and it's it's. I think it's one of the hardest things to do actually because we see when Jojo Rabbit and all those movies they don't manage to do it even though Taika does he does it in the early movies he does it yeah. cheap but then later as soon as you want to do almost too much and you want to want to add too much of your philosophy or your morals onto them they can't resist you just gotta to let create them... a coherent meaning out of the chaos yeah. of childhood always feels phony and exactly. this movie captures well the chaos put. of childhood yeah that's funny I was thinking of Jojo Rabbit specifically watching Fighting Elegy uh, this time oh like, yeah i have like a lot of but uh fighting elegy 2 speaks a lot to his humor in that that movie is so funny and probably like his lightest and most enjoyable film just in terms of the humor and it has his saddest ending at the same time kind of speaks to like how he can have heaviness within that humor kind of coexist at the same time where life as it's going on is full of like you know good times and fun but like if you step back and look at it like it's a bummer man John, yeah. John, are you saying that because you once sent a letter to a girl and said, kiss this space and send it back if you feel like it? And oh she just God. sent you back a note saying, I didn't feel like it? That part makes me oh, cry. Man. Yeah, that is hardcore. <laughs> the circle, yeah, that was the empty circle. So then we move on to uh, Take Aim at the Police Fan, where he reteams with uh, uh, Mizushima. Uh, and this is one of his most beloved films. Uh, what's the plot of this film, Chris? Uh, Take Aim at the Police Fam very quickly is just there's a prison guard transporting a police van full of prisoners uh, between jails and the opening scene. Assassination attempt comes occurs during the transport. There's a setup. Prisoner gets killed. Prison guard uh, essentially loses his job. He's put on hiatus on sabbatical and decides to investigate the murder because it just doesn't sit right with him what happened. And also for his honor's sake, he goes into it. So yeah, it's a detective it, movie. But. Yeah, it's a procedural. And the crucial thing at a, with a procedural is otherwise it becomes really frustrating that you can kind of follow the plot, right? And take you from, and here the transitions just make no sense or I'm just too stupid. I've watched this so many times and it's filled with so many cool flourishings, but then we go from like these little cool spa scenes and the bow and arrow. And it's almost like here Suzuki has, like you were saying before, John, he has the ideas and then works the scenes around him. He's sort of ramping up this thing, but he's like, would be cool if she gets shot in the, in the breast like with an arrow but then we got to work things around it so it doesn't really gel or how do you the, the, there's really cool stylistic moments like when he writes in the beginning into the window yeah. uh, into, into the or, or the sniper scope or the, the tie that he turns around to show that he's actually can locate women but it's also 
it's not it's no stray dog it's not like a clear forward you know we're, we're we're looking after the gun that's been lost here it is sort of his redemption story that he has to find out this really convoluted plot almost like a chinatown where it's like a father daughter thing at the end and he's also marred by this plaster that he has over his eye so it's almost like this jack nicholson hunting down this more and more elusive plot against a bigger and bigger kind of like underworld but it's not well, it, again, that's exactly, it makes a reference to on the screen, one of the characters, the main guy says, that's stuff out of a, you know, a, a car queen or Irish novel, you know, Ellery Queen, William Irish novel. And it's like that. These are so convoluted, like Long Goodbye, which I've seen a bunch of times and I could not tell you the plot other than in the broadest, well, there's a murder and it's like his friend, you know, I could hmm. not tell you other than the broadest than this movie. And I've seen it three times. But, yeah, you know, and it still works. Yeah. It completely still works. And, completely and, works. And and that's why here sort of we get early things like the scenes of the cabaret. So the show like Youth of the Beast later where we see behind the screen, we see behind the show and sort of the theater moments, which then he takes on later much and much more increasingly open and sort of removes all the other aspects of hiding everything. He exposes the mechanics of the stage and sort of we get these really cool spaces everywhere. And so your eyes always darting around. And even though like I take in movies very little plot. I, I usually go all the way surface and Suzuki always gives you something to look at. It always gives you another interest. And so it, it really has that sensibility in the end where it's kind of losing focus and you come out of it because there's a cool scene, something is happening, but you're as lost almost as the, as the detective. And this film and, is a turning point, I think for that reason, right. In yeah. his career. Do you think that these, uh, these things that he's doing directorially are sort of ref or sort of, reactions to these narrative convolutions after coming off of voice without a shadow and having to come to the end would say okay it was everybody who did it everyone was involved there's this big conspiracy that we now have to give you the exposition on and this one it's like it doesn't matter it's the dad who cares like there's a mysterious criminal yeah be, we'll get yeah, to because it because but... i have a cool scene with the gasoline truck where the yeah. flames go and there's mount fuji and sort of we let's let's do that okay cool and then how they get there always feels really like ah uh, i don't know the, the in-between stuff doesn't feel right but the narrative starts to kind of I, suffer a little bit what, yeah. I, what i think characterizes the the narrative style of this movie is it has two different scenes where a sinister looking guy in the back seat of the car drives off slowly as his introduction. Yeah, it's like yeah, he yeah. does it not just once, but twice, but like, and here's a sinister guy in a car. Also this movie, uh, the police chief is constantly showing up at crime scenes, like as it's happening to a point where I was like, well, he's gotta be in on it. Cause he's just at the crime scene now. And, but it's not, he's just there impossibly like on a mountain yeah. road the police chief who's supposed to be back <laughs> yeah. in tokyo is just like that was a real pickle you found yourself in and you're like wait that scene the guys aren't trying to kill him anymore they're not going to try there's a lot of just like and then this kind of character shows up yeah. and does this kind of thing geography breaking down in this story yeah. yeah yeah and it's also a shame because he builds up cool like you know bosses mid mid boss levels like the sniper yeah. and then he disposed it's so this it's so unsatisfying the way they get killed off in the end i mean there's not a big he sort of ducks under a truck and shoots him and you're like this should have been cooler i mean this guy's yeah. like mythologically cool in the beginning with his gum yeah. on the scope and and he's a like he 
has all these quirks and we're like, this is going to be a cool mid boss level fight, but it's sort of in the end. Yeah, I don't know. And th there you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's like the, we have that one scene on Mount Fuji, the lights going, we need to edit, like you said, post-production is three days. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Yeah. And so this is the where the positional title is about him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's so cool too. the opening how he reads the the signs with the, the, signs. With the scope. So yeah. And awesome. also so jokey too. It's like a yeah. good joke. It's like a yeah. great joke. I, I was actually talking about the the bosses, um, Misako Watanabe, who plays the secret boss. But it's also one of those things where you hear at the beginning she's in charge and her dad is the main guy, and then at the end it's played like a reveal, like, and now we're going to meet the big guy behind it. Her dad, who we told you earlier in the film was in charge. You're like, I don't get it. But Misako <laughs> Watanabe gives an incredible performance in this movie. And this yeah. is one of the movies I think about where he's really a slave to his actors. He has no control over them, right? Yeah, and when true. they do a good job, uh, it's on their own. And when they don't, it's just a mess. I think of Sachiko Hidari, who's actually in um, uh, The Boy Who Returned, who you didn't tell us to watch. Uh, who's the lead from Insect Woman, my favorite Japanese actress. And she's phenomenal in The Boy Who Returned. He never gets a performance yeah, like that again like that out of anything. I like that movie for some reason, but... but uh, it's uh, got its problems. Yeah, it's... it's but no, I think it's that... Of, yep, yeah, you know, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that that um, he's really at home working with kids and teenagers where the rawness uh, feels appropriate and the rawness of performance. And that's why I think when I watch his movies again, the teenager and kid performances really stay with me, like in Fighting Elegy and Bastards and stuff. Like those performances really stay with me as opposed to the adults, which are extremely variable. Very, very true. And he also, he has that sort of salacious quote by his brother, sort of, I, you don't know whether it's true or not, but the fact that they stopped developing at a certain point and therefore remained young forever because Suzuki was always, <laughs> later on in his career, he does enter in the 80s into this kind of, personality the best dressed man in japan and sort of he's a cool old guy and he's very in tune with the youth always which i never was for example i'm the opposite i was always an yeah. old kid I, i never vibe with that i never wanted to be young i don't i don't i i don't i was always like i was cynical right away and suzuki but i always admire from my father for example is somebody who has always remained young who can work really yeah. well with young people who's open to ideas and stuff and so i really find this comes across here and like you said he's also very much the way my father worked he's a theater director he's so dependent on his actors he's not the 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 cracking the whip master you know who who demands great performances and will that wills them out of them he sort of wants this all to fall and rise every day anew and this drove yeah. me crazy as a kid but <laughs> it's sort of the way <laughs> suzuki works on set too you really feel like oh you know the script says one thing but let me interject this let me find these shots let me let me um work through it with you and and you i like you said the reveals like in tokyo nights the same problem the reels in the end is the guy that we thought all along there's no reveal like yeah. we keep waiting <laughs> there's all these cool setups hinting at it the big question marks and wow who's it going to be the kind of batman logo and then yeah. in the end it's like oh yeah, i knew it's the the the, the, the guy that, with a scar that you knows the evil businessman <laughs> Yeah, the guy uh, who very fan. early on, you see he's got the cuff link and you're like, yeah, wow, exactly. what a bit of misdirection. <laughs> Police fan looks great too. It's his, uh, I think it's yeah. his first film with uh, Shigeo Shimin, right? Yeah. Um, it's gorgeous, yeah, gorgeous looking film. Another thing I noticed about this film, and maybe this is kind of not, kind of uh, a dead end here because he does not, obviously he didn't write a lot of his material. He was kind of, you know, inherited his, his scripts and whatnot. But um, 
I've noticed that when he has heroes, somebody who's supposed to be unquestionably the good guy, it's never a cop. This one is a prison guard. Shishido in uh, Detective Bureau is a PI. Youth of the Beast, he's a disgraced former cop, right? But he's never like a flat out straight policeman. And it kind of makes me wonder, Suzuki's got some kind of an interesting relationship with authority that, you know, he re- he likes the rogues. He likes the kind of guys who are off on their own rather than someone who's part of the government or part of the, you know, the structure of the of Tokyo. Yeah, it's true. And even in the Yakuza movies, they're really always honorable Robin Hoods, uh, especially in the Tohei big Yakuza. But in his, they are very independent. They're sort of lonely, lone wolves, and, and they kind of play the honor system, but they're, they're, they're tortured, obviously, like in all these Yakuza movies. But his are, they, they show a different side always. Like, and, and that's interesting. They always, it's not sort of the much that he explores this brokenness. They're just showing to us, and then we wonder with them. We very much naturally take their personalities on. He's not really there to dive, dive deeper into it. He does that more with the women. But yeah, we, we sort of, um, you're, you're right. That's really interesting. And, and, and that maybe also that's the Sam Fuller thing, this distrust for the yes, laws, the yeah. authority, the kind of, like, I'd rather follow the, the, the artist rather than the, yeah, it becomes, it becomes, I think later, I mean, uh, if we go to Everything Goes Wrong, which is a Sun Tribe movie, yeah, which he, then again, he goes year. back into the same year, he goes into jumps and back on the genre of the sort of james dean rockabilly all this all this stuff that was given rise to seasons of the sun which was a 1950s novel and it sort of creates these what happens in japan a lot these subcultures these zoku zoku tribal culture and that's still mm-hmm. present today whether it's rockabilly and things that take on from america but it's also garu it's also gangsters it's also uh, back into manga and character culture video games today that we see played out that all has its rise in that post-war youth culture where they want to belong to something a youth gang or a motorcycle club or but definitely yeah. not the lost fathers that were part of the war effort. Yeah. yeah. And everything goes wrong. Just the plot of that real quick is it's about these sort of hoodlum teams together in a gang. One of them needs an abortion. And so the others come up with a plan to blackmail the father of one of their friends uh, by making it seem like he's had sex with a young woman to get the money for the abortion. But more than anything, blackmailing, blackmailing the man who's dating the mother of one of the friends. Yes. He's I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. Yes. The mother. Yes, again, convoluted. But it's also about how this main character, who's, uh, who's played by uh, Tamio Kawachi, who's one of the great uh, Suzuki leads. He's very much associated with Suzuki as much as Joe Shishido is. Uh, he's just a bad kid. He's just a bad egg. There's, it's really hard to defend him in any way. There's Again, there's a sort of absence of morality to this film that's very bracing even now. And like you said, it, it was it was one of the Sun Tribe pictures. Um, it reminded me actually this time of watching it of uh, of Brighter Summer Day, just because of the mm-hmm. sheer amount of yeah. like rockabilly to it. And mm-hmm. just like the unhappy kids living in like a perpetual night, even though this is not literal nighttime in this movie. It yeah, was funny is that Tony told me that like I was going to He's like, it's OK if you, you mix up these <laughs> movies. Yeah. I can't remember now if this is the one where they're 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 thinking maybe they're going to push one of the gang leaders in front of a bus, uh, like there's there's a setup of tension. Maybe I'm thinking of um, teenage yakuza. I can't remember. It but is, I believe it's it is yakuza. yakuza. Yeah, yeah, and it's the but same. But I definitely got that vibe. There's so many of the same cast and a different theme, a very slight different variation. It's really hard to remember. Uh, but but this has one of the best concise openings of like 
even for Suzuki, that's so rare. It's it's like the whole crux is in the first 30 seconds. We see this montage of wars and tanks mm-hmm. exploding and he steps out into the sunlight, blazing beach town in this Hawaiian shirt. And we see that his war experience that his father's lived through, his grandfather lived through is not his. He sees it on screen and he's dis- he's disenfranchised. He's unhappy with it's his father's It's so fast bender. And it's, it's so yeah, fast and it's bender, so quick and we're done with it. Here's the yeah. crux why he doesn't fit in. He doesn't fit in into this culture he wants to stomp his own way and when his mother clearly is trying to survive through the sort of handouts of other men and he blames his father he screams at his father why are you not there you know it's like it it, you see this whole frustration and even when he tries to you know fit in but it's just so seductive this other new world that's waiting for him this and and you see him tortured and he's like you said it's hard to sympathize with him but it's also very clear his my, my two word note for this movie was fucking Jiro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. well that's also funny i always wonder watching this kind of movie which is about a youth subculture very directly and it's yeah. from another country and another era like what measure of accuracy is there to any of this is this like watching the punk rock episode of Quincy and being <laughs> like, huh, now I know oh about punk. God. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like what, how much crime was there? How much is this, how much would this have been shocking to audiences? How much of this would have been a downplayed version? It's obviously going to be phony somewhat. It's a movie, but I'm always curious, like what is the reality So here? we, we you know? know for sure that uh, the, the guns and drugs aspects in all these films get totally overblown. There's almost virtually no illegal guns or drugs in Japan, even yeah. back then. Even it's, it's so all these like trippy and youth of the beast, all these prostitutes hooked on something. It's not yeah. true. That never was true. And so these things get overblown and come from the West and they clearly get adapted to uh, by by th- films they see and and there's a great fear of drugs in japan like if you light a joint i mean it's insane people go even like hard-boiled yakuza like look at you like you're like what the fuck is this guy he's like an outlaw like it, it, and drinking is the accepted form and and why they go so heavy and so bizarre to obliteration and to drink to forget and all yeah. that stuff that's really there but i think at this point because so many people have made such similar movies like Crazed Fruit and Black Sun yeah. with the jazz and stuff. We really see something manifest so clearly through just the need of this belonging, like Rebel Without a Cause, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, um, that there is this this sense of culture that you even see present now. You go to Shibuya parks and, and these guys are dancing in their leather jackets and rockabilly outfits. And then you see the manga girls coming from the other end as crazy cartoon characters. So there is something else to not wanting to be Japanese being such a modern crazy society I always thought that's yeah. so fascinating where it's like things we would never th- see technology even in 10 years but also everybody's on the weekends looking at cherry blossoms and, and dressing traditional it's not a yeah. costume like it is for example in Bavaria now where the culture I grew up in even in the 80s when I grew up there was you saw guys in lederhosen and there wasn't a costume it was really old guys with beards drinking yeah. their beer steins and and now it's completely ridiculous overblown Hollywood fake culture the dirndls none of it is real yeah. and it, it's sort of in japan that's it feels very authentic still so yeah it's 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 something i i question as, as well when i watch these but clearly this this love and this idolization for happens in france happens in germany the, the jazz especially the disenfranchised black 
Americans that come over and get this love and adoration abroad where it's like, yeah, America also doesn't like you, but we welcome you. Yeah, sort of this, film, this film is really, his for me, I think his quintessential youth uh, rebellion movie because it has two titles. It has The Madness of Youth and Everything Goes Wrong, which you know, The Madness of Youth sounds like a B picture. It sounds like Rebel Without a Cause, right? Yeah. But Everything Goes Wrong, uh, you know, in tones of much more darker kind of look at all of this. And Jiro being this guy who blames, you know, the war and his father's death on <clears throat> this man who's dating his mother because only because he's a, a munitions uh, engineer or works in a armament factory, where obviously, you know, the American influence, the the car, the fast cars, the idea that you have to hook up with all of these women and the jukebox and the Coleman Hawkins. Americans are the reason that there was a war. The Americans are the reason that the war happens. Your father was killed because he was battling Americans. So it has this kind of weird conflict uh, between him and the culture. That's interesting to kind of see his downfall through that, blaming the wrong person. Yeah, and yeah, like how, how Belmondo, sorry, how Belmondo sort of wipes his uh, his lips and breathless in the same year. Uh, here he's sucking his thumb constantly. He's like a yeah. baby. Like there's mm. no the, the absence of my father. But well, it's, like, yeah, it's that's really funny. Obvious. John made me think of this earlier when I got the, the plot wrong. So many absent fathers in Seijun Suzuki movies, like yeah. fatherless kids is always how it is. You look at any of them, you just pick one and then you think about the plot. Tokyo Nights, his father died. That's yeah. the start of the plot. Just grab one and they have no father in it. And I think that that's a running theme for him. The idea that you have to just negate that generation that caused World War II and engaged in World War II. So there's this whole generation that's being born that has to sort of blank, that didn't happen, that doesn't exist. Philosophically, morally, that sphere was defeated and proven wrong. So there's a new thing that's just going to yeah. basically spring up without a father. And what does it look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Dangerous young women hanging out by jukeboxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. like you say, Tommy Kawachi is the perfect. Uh, uh, he's he's hired as part of the bad trio to together with Akira Kobayashi, who appears later on, or actually early on, because you said um, um, he's in uh, in, in, in uh, Suzuki kind of gives him one of his first starts. But he he's becomes matinee idol singer, and yeah. they're specifically hired as bad boys. These guys don't look pretty. They are there. They are in. And Suzuki uses him as, as much of a villain later as, as 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 here. He's sort of the 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 main character. But he's sort of his face is is sly. He sort of got the viper later look, you know, or Zoro, yeah. whatever he appears in. in well, the when life. he switches for Joe to be his main guy, yeah, Cameo exactly. still shows up as like the second lead villain who's like the real snake yeah Dr. Exactly. leslie chung to his tony leong a little bit <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah and it morphs this sort of morphs into sort of the boy scout movies and it's strange because here he's laying it all open right and then he does these really innocent ones and i'm sure that's a studio mandate as well because you know fit this matinee idol into it and he's got to have a song and you've got to fit the movie around this record we're putting out and well it's well, like, interesting another one you you wanted us to watch was uh teen yakuza and you mentioned the boy scout movies that's the closest he gets to doing a boy scout movie it's about a yes. teen who uh doesn't like how the the teen yakuza's are taking over the town and uh he sort of 
breaks up his friendship who gets stabbed in a fight when they're when they're fighting teen hoodlums and his friend goes bad because his leg is screwed up and his dad is coming to see him uh, after he's gotten stabbed and gets hit by a truck so now he's fatherless too and he goes bad because he doesn't have a father but it's all about uh, about uh, Tamio cleaning up this small town and sort of rebuilding his friendship and being the the good guy in a way that you've almost never seen a Seijin Suzuki movie. Although I guess Tokyo Nights- the good Nights, Jiro is, in this one. Yeah. The good version of Jiro. Yeah. <laughs> Tokyo Nights, which is which is the um, the same year. I believe it's the same year. It's one year before. So Tokyo Nights is 61 and Teen Yakuza is 62. Uh, same thing where you have a uh, teen who takes over his uh, father's corporation, his corporate role and cleans up the corporation as well. He get, he ferrets out the corruption and uh, Yakuza influence in the corporation and kills them. Yeah, so the, um, and he's like a Max Fisher type is the other weird thing. The opening sequence of that movie is so similar to Rushmore where hey, he's Rushmore. in like the boxing club and the music club and you know. Exactly, you that's know. exactly. The Wes Anderson is all over the place. The, this, the particularities yes. and all the, the car and the, and the belonging to all these clubs and having almost like a letterhead for in each. In the cufflinks. And he's the, good at everything, yeah. yeah. And I know, John, you, you're looking to this scene which we're getting to in this one. There's a spe specific satisfying guest gamble scene but it's almost this the one tokyo night is it's also interesting because it really leads into the 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 hell of a guy the 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 um koji wada is the is the character who's like a pudgy fella he's not really he, he's not good at anything but we're supposed he's to believe he he's like karate guy and he's so clumsy and and just not, and but we're meant to believe this guy's like good at fencing then he's the leader of the chess club and plays the piano and what i i really he's this is sort of my favorite of my least favorite ones it's so much fun it's so yeah, much it's, fun it's stupid it's playful but it's, so much it's fun. stupid and it has a terrible ending in a quarry but a good ending before that so it's kind of like yeah he's the sort of bruce wayne heir to the throne but little batman with the mask later yeah the it's one of his first he's obsessed with kabuki theater seijin suzuki and um it's one of the first times he really indulges his genuine love and interest in kabuki theater where the hero essentially can't stop the bad guys because he's agreed to star in the high school play so he's got to do that first <laughs> yeah it's almost it's like hamlet by by way of uh kabuki theater <laughs> yeah it's bruce wayne hamlet the revenge of the father the for the father's slight so he has this whole set of like the gang that he but they don't get it's not like uh in age of nudity where they get specific characters build up but he sort of starts with uh, mayumi shimitsu who's one of the most gorgeous girls i was always in love with her i was like oh my god she's gorgeous and she always gets teamed up with him and he's like he's like what does she see in him like, I was like, she is so cute it's like really and he's like in the prime of his awkward teen years too it's oh like my he God, looks yeah. he looks a little better when he's older and this movie yeah, you're exactly. like and he gets different roles like he gets to be the pimp in and gate of uh gate of flesh and he yeah. suzuki lets him carmen he's the the loser boyfriend he gets to spread his wings a little bit more but here he's like just like yeah exactly like mittens and bad sweaters and karate it's like oh my god but exactly for that reason it's fun and it and, and suzuki always he really goes here into the mgm minelli style like the, yeah. the flourishing of the satin behind the, the green lighting but it also plays a lot like a batman 66 episode which gets amplified later on with yeah. the question marks zooming in and out and the oh, villain yeah. layers and and it's sort of like uh um um 
it's also like the me saying Paul... Hamlet. Me saying Hamlet made me realize it's like the Bad Sleepwell from the year before, only like a happy teen version of the Bad Sleepwell. Yeah, true. <laughs> where everything goes right and the other hero survives. And it also has very much the DNA of these Rampo um, uh, young detective novels. The, he writes yeah. a lot of this like detective club fiction where the kids are solving a mystery. Edith Blyton novels that uh, that, that we read as kids, like uh, the, um, and there's a the character I remember in Edith Blyton, Dickie, and he has like he's a master of disguise and he's like um, he can change outfits and it's 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 very much in that sort of UK English uh, kids that solve mysteries uh, genre as well. And 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 for full zest, it's it's cool. There's there, there's sort of a uh, it's always jarring when you see a Western actor as the teacher here in, in a Japanese movie, and he can clearly speak Japanese. So it's, it's always fascinating to watch. Like, how does this guy interact with these kids? But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, it's a little wanderous too. The the football yes. brawl, although not as much as fighting elegy is the Ducky is Boys. His, yeah, yeah, his wanderers. Exactly. Ducky Boys. Exactly. The, the Ducky Boys appear, but then it sort of fizzles out. But you see all these. <laughs> Uh, interesting th things, like you say, uh, the Kabuki is a big one where you see action backstage in front of the stage. They switch out the masks and 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 all these li little fun things are happening. Like Hell of a Guy, which is the one after that, is the is the opposite. Like that one really doesn't hold together. It's the same yeah. cast. It's like he's just going he's like a little patrol troop and he's doing bad karate to stop villains. And even though the showdown and he's there's always something in suzuki even if it becomes like i i need to pick out that one cherry in that whole mess and there's one scene at the very end where we see the villain villa and there's all this taxidermy around and there's yeah. this one shot where the shadows pass over this stuffed leopard and it almost looks like his eyes come alive and it, it and that's something suzuki manages to go something on set and improvise and and there's beautiful moments always like the in the end there's this red light in the garage and just the car lights illuminated and there's a bunch of goo it's, it very plays much like a batman episodes all the villains slip around in goo but because they have all this mud on their face and it's so red lit and the cars are bouncing the lights off the walls it becomes really surreal and this kind of like slapstick fight at the end and that's almost like enough you know something like this is coming you just have to plod through a little bit of the uh, good boy uh, plot uh, that, that leads up to it. I'm with you guys. This one does not feel essential, but it is so much fun, and I really enjoy this one. Let oh, yeah, the, the gambling scene. John. No, the gambling scene. <laughs> Love the gambling scene yeah. where it looks like they're going to take him. They're uh, pulling the same trick they did to, uh, to to get the other guy over on their side, which is to get him drunk and get him down to the you know uh, basement where they're doing illegal gambling that they control. And it looks like they're just going to be taking him. They're going to make him go into debt and basically he'll be under their control. And then he turns the tables on him. <laughs> you know, it turns out that he knows all the tricks. He does all these fancy card tricks and you're just like, yes, this is so fucking great. He also can't get drunk, which is what I love. Oh, yeah. Is they give him like 12 amazing. whiskeys and he's like, you think that's going to work on me? And I'm like, kid, I think that's going to work on everybody. Don't be telling kids you can have an entire bottle of whiskey and be yeah, fine to gamble. It's amazing. And it's like, 
adult hands when they cut into all the card tricks and then sort of him smiling <laughs> same with the piano it's it's yeah it's all he rides this ridiculous chitty chitty bang bang car this old steamer sort of yeah it's very it's, much it's very much seijin suzuki's rushmore is how yeah, i would describe 100%, this. it's it's 100 percent. yeah so this leads us into 1963 just to kind of take uh, a chunk of of films at a time i think going forward we should just go yeah. year by year because basically every movie is interesting in the in these years going forward or worth talking about 1963 this is the year that it changes for him i would say when it when it really whatever the flashpoint is and we can discuss it he becomes the sage in suzuki that everybody knows he makes detective burrow two three go to hell bastards which is his first real Joe Shishido starring movie where he makes a Joe Shishido movie. He makes Youth of the Beast, which I think is in strong contention for his best movie. I think that it's certainly his best uh, Yakuza movie. Uh, I Just Dynamite. He makes The Bastard, which is a, uh, like we said, it's a dry run for Fighting Elegy. We talked about it a little bit. And he makes Canto Wanderer. And Canto Wanderer is important because it's the first movie he made with Takeo Kimura. And he cites Takeo Kamura, who was an experimental theater director who came on to be his production designer, as being, um, they might make the bastard together first, but this is the first year he makes it. Uh, Suzuki cites um, Takeo Kamura as being the thing that changed his career. That, that working with Teiko Kamara, his approach to lighting, his approach to sets, his approach to abstraction, that a lot of that was driven by Kamara. And I was wondering if you think that's true um, and just taken as a group, those four movies are interesting. As a turning point year, what do you think about that? And just to go through the plots real quick before we discuss them, Canto Wanderer is... Um, Wow, I started with the one that I can't describe the plot. He's sort of tailing, (laughs) it's about a Yakuza who's tailing a girl into the criminal underworld and just sort of gets deeper and deeper uh, enmeshed in a a criminal underworld, sort of in romantic spiritual pursuit of a woman that's interesting to him. Uh, Then you have The Bastard, which is again about a teen at a military academy who just cannot fit in and keeps getting kicked out or sort of kicks himself out of life. You have Youth of the Beast, which is about a former cop who goes undercover in a gang pretending to be a criminal to find out his former partner's murder played by Joe Shishido. And then you have a very similar plot with uh, Detective Burrow 2-3, where Joe Shishido plays a private detective who goes to the police, who teams up with an informant who's been let out of prison, basically to keep the informant from getting killed by the gangs that are waiting outside the prison to kill him the moment he leaves and find out uh, what his sources are in the criminal underworld and how they're pulling off the heist they're pulling By infiltrating off. the gang. Yeah, by infiltrating yeah. the gang. My favorite part about Detective Bureau 23 is the ludicrous idea. It all hinges on that there's some other guy that looks like Joe Shishido. They is like, yeah. hey, I've seen somebody who looks like you who's in prison. We'll give you his IDs. And it's Which, like, really? There's another guy who looks like Joe Shishido out who has there. Cheek implants, exactly. <laughs> no, this is, uh, like you said, so first of all, I agree 100% with this contention that he meets uh, 
this guy who's the link, the set designer, basically experimental theater maker, but he's the link between so many cool movies at the time. He makes basically 60, he's the, he's the art director for like 60 movies in, in, in just the, uh, 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 in the sixties or so. And in the fifties as well, it slows down a little bit in the seventies. So that is definitely a catalyst where Suzuki finally gets a partner on his side that sees it like he sees it. And he can sort of, do shorthand. It's all of a sudden he can go quicker and other things. He can concentrate on the actors because he knows he'll build a cool set. He has another idea. So they they both sort of speed up each other's uh, metabolism, so to speak. Yeah. And on the other hand, this is a great point to where how we have to maybe mention that I was a Suzuki file in the 90s. So we all come from this time before these things were readily available. We saw these things disjointed. And sometimes you just saw a still of the French Cinematheque and I saw Detective Bureau 23 and I was like, oh my God, I cannot wait for this. And it took me 10 years to see something or you yeah. saw just a clip and some, and then you see them and you're either disappointed or it blows your mind. But this is sort of very much this condensed period 63 where this happens a lot for me, where I saw like everybody else, I saw the release in the 90s, late 99 or something, Tokyo Drifter, Criterion Collection. And I'm like, wow, I'm off on the path. But then it takes years to hunt these films down. And even now, it's really hard to see them uh, outside the US. In the US, I think there's a lot of on Amazon. But here it became, I went to New York and in, in, in the East Village and took down a video cassette of a bootleg copy. There used to be all these cool video stores where you could grab Kung Fu yeah. And that was one of the first things I did was try and find Branded to Kill when I got yeah. to New York for college. It was on my list. I had a list in high school of 20 movies I wanted to see. And this yeah. is like the stupid video store VHS era. I lived out in farm country. I had three of them crossed off when I went nice. to college. I made it when I was like 14 or 15. And, and two of them were any Fred Wiseman film, any Fassbender film were things oh, that wow. had been crossed off. And I forget what the last one was. I think it was Diary of a Country yeah, Truth or something. I, I had, I had but a... I was like, I'm going to get Branded to Kill. Anyway. That's such a, that's such exactly, we, that's so lost on this generation now. They kind of can find anything, any music, but the hunt of these movies. I had this big giant Eastern film lexicon who got now yeah. expanded, but it had thousands of films in there. It was mostly for weird martial arts movies I was looking for, but it also had later, as I discovered, all everything, all the Yakuza weirdness in, in catalog by this German guy. I still have the book. And what I used to do, so I have a relationship to Suzuki that, predates everything before I even watched any Suzuki movies because I used to grab cool titles from this book for my paintings. So yeah. I have a painting from like 95 that's called Youth of the Beast. I've never seen Youth of the Beast, <laughs> but I, I was so, I painted such a picture in my head that I was like, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I, I was looking for it for this, this episode, if I could find a picture of it, but I think it's lost. And it was sort of, uh, how how these titles loomed and when when you see them and and they cash everything in all your hopes and this is very much what happens with youth of the beast when you finally see this and it's like blowing your mind in all kinds of ways where it's like there is really each scene leads to the next there's not almost no downtime because it's another highlight and another yeah. highlight and that's it's amazing sort of, tony that's amazing uh, you keep talking about kung fu movies it's funny because i was thinking about a really fun scene in this movie where uh, the gang is like, hey, let's go see your dad right now. And they go to the uh, the priest, right? The the church and all the people there are ready. Like it's all the cops pretending to be practitioners and everything. And they're just hanging around. It's so much like the scene in Super Cop, right? Police Story 3, where the similar situation where Jackie Chan has infiltrated the gang and they're like, let's go to your hometown. 
and he's worried, but he gets there and like the police chief is dressed up as his his auntie and whatnot. You know, everyone is kind of like, you know, hey, what's up, Jackie Chan? Hey, we know who you are. And it's yeah, a similar yeah. sort of comedic scene. Absolutely. And 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 I used to be very um sort of strict about mixing my Chinese and Japanese movies. You know, I learned from Bruce Lee, like you don't mix with the enemy and sort of, you know, all this <laughs> paranoia about it. But then I love Kurosawa first. So I was always conflicted, like which to go after. But this was um these things were rumbled and heard about. They were so mythical. Like it was really hard to see these things. And I remember I had a French version of Detective Bureau 123 and my French is terrible, but Japanese, uh, French subtitles, Japanese movie. And so that's how I saw most. In fact, when I lived in Japan, I went to the video store and made sure I saw all of them, but you know, not translated. So my understanding of them was purely visual and it really works with Suzuki because you know you can sit this through and see like, oh my God, like this editing or this technique. Uh, well, that's, I, uh, that's why I couldn't remember the plot of Canto Wander. The first yeah. time I saw that movie, I saw it without subtitles. I got a VCD from Chinatown yeah. that had no, it might've had Chinese subtitles on it. And yeah. I just did not know. And my memories of that movie are just that one incredible sequence of shots where the walls fall down and there's a red behind it. And then he goes yeah. outside, you know? And Which that's all so subtitles is. and we're like i still don't know what's going on. yeah and we exactly well, but he's, which like also... a, he's like a dummy it's it reminded yeah. me this time watching it of um life without principle the johnny toe movie john oh yeah where it's mm -hmm. just about like a guy who's in over his head on scams and flams you know and he like falls for the badger game which is great and just you know just that kind of guy who's just the uh, you know just gonna go farther and farther into to the to the mess yeah, Joe, uh, uh, Suzuki's uh, he's really open about dealing with these matinee idol singers that he has to work with. And Akira Kobayashi is one of the kind of, he works with him over and over again. He has like four movies or five movies with him. So there is something there. But he, in Canto Wanderer, he almost, he all turns up on the set with these painted in eyebrows. And, and everybody They're goes so like, what bizarre. the fuck is going on? Why, why does he have these eyebrows? And everybody's just let him be, who cares? Suzuki described them as Brezhnevian eyebrows, yeah, exactly. which is That's so perfect. Perfect. And there's, um, the Yakuza films are weird, those three. Those are the traditional Yakuza films. So we, when we distinguish between gangster films and Yakuza films. So these are the, yeah. the original kind of uh, um, uh, the honorable outlaw kind of uh, Jidaigeki almost traditional Yakuza films. And it's always divided between Giri and Ninjo, which is the duty on one side and then the personal feelings, the fulfillment. So they they become really ponderous and, and, and boring most of the times because it's like watching opera. You have to yeah. watch, you have to watch between the arias, the highlights. You have to watch all this plot that you know where it leads already. So you're watching yeah. this, them, them finding things out in front of you. You already know as the audience where this leads. It's always, and so when, you, when I was crossing off my invisible lists of all these Yakuza movies to see, after a while you just get overwhelmed with just the same plots and this is something that same, of course, in the Western, something you get, you just want to see different filmmakers taking on the form and like, yeah. what do you do with it? And Suzuki, of course, finds amazing things. So like a Joe Shishido musical dance number. Yeah, exactly. Which also, is incredible. Or, or Yunozuki Ito being the evil villain card shark because yeah. he's 
he's the MVP of every movie. He steals every, every movie he's in. And so all of a sudden when he turns up, he's not an Ikatsu player. You're like, what is he doing? It's such a crazy surprise. You're like, wow. He's all of a sudden here. And this scene is brilliant when you have the kind of exchange yeah. where he reads the cards in the soy sauce dish. And that's a real highlight smack in the middle of Canto Wandra. Whereas yeah. at the end, like you said, when it falls away into this kabuki red and blue screens and the sort of the veil is lifted from the illusion of the cinema, how the critics always post. It's just such a stylish, cool moment. You always mix it up with the other three Yakuza films, which have versions of that. The screen doors later in... in, in and um, I even I, I get so confused with those three because I always expect other parts to come when you see the same signifiers happen. But then there's just a slight longer version in the other movie. So he plays on on these themes or, or elaborates on them. Well, it's funny yeah. that you say that the themes of Jedi Geki are obviously in these movies, but even the period a little bit like Canto Wanderer and Tattooed Life are two movies. I can never remember if they're period movies or not because he's so far beyond the geography of these films at this, this point that I think it doesn't matter what time it's set and you yeah, know it's, it's, very it's clearly, more theme based than anything yeah the uh, uh, flowers in the angry waves for example just the middle chapter in the in the in the in this Yakuza films is perfectly put as captured like Asakusa we know where we are and it's Taisho period it's 20s we have violins and the street setting is so beautiful yeah. and I always find this so beautifully realized because the, the cinematography it's it's so different than all these garish things it's 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 almost like a, a Mano Olmi movie it's like uh, Albero <laughs> Delizocoli it gets into like all the tones are amber and, and 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 it's like a renaissance painting even the blues and the reds are dark and 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 it's 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 uh, that's almost the best thing about flowers and angry waves the other things play out as they always play out and the ending is really really weak in the snow drifts and stuff everybody sort of he builds up this zorro character the stalking death and again he just falls in a hole at the end and sort of grabs at their legs and everybody's really dumb at the end it's like why are you so dumb you're hiding out and it's just like well but it's, it's really what you mentioned what you mentioned too is one of the things i think is remarkable about, about suzuki we're criticizing a lot of aspects of these films but what i find incredible about his movies is that the bad parts don't weaken them somehow you never mm. see the bad parts and go that ruined it whatever he was doing i can't like that movie anymore because of the bad parts they're just an aspect of them normally you know what i mean yeah. it's there was a bad part that did nothing from to detract from my enjoyment of the good part and i wonder do you think that's because he's so surface aesthetics that you know, you're not having the plot blown up by a dumb plot twist because you're enjoying something else about this. Do you think that's the case or do you think that that's being uh, condescending to him in some way? No, I think I think that's why I said in the very beginning, he's almost worse and he's better then we yeah. all give him credit for He doesn't play in the middle a lot. And it's obviously guys like us who watch movies very differently than the normal audience. I, I, I could not show this to my dad. He would be like, what the fuck am I watching? And he's a very sophisticated, art-loving, uh, avant-garde guy, but he's bored. He would be bored by them. Yeah, but my dad asked to watch one last night because I'm here at my parents' yeah. house. And I was like, let's not watch that. Uh, and I convinced him to watch Quentin Durward instead, which he loved, yeah. but exactly yeah. the same thing of like, Dad, I can't let you watch one of these movies in good conscience. That's malpractice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like you have to be primed for this. Um, like you, you as a filmmaker, us as cinema cinephiles, lovers of of picking up, having this cross reference of all these other movies that play in our heads, and so you pick those out, or because they're almost like these little 
totems that we carry on for such a long time. I, I remember the, uh, the flowers in the angry wave scene uh, and stuff. I had the tattooed life, especially the final showdown was mm -hmm. something I'd seen in stills and almost carried as like a totem. I was like, I've seen outtakes of this. I want to see the full final 15 minutes. And when the final 15 minutes realize it's enough to make up for all the rest of the movie. It's yeah. so awesome that you like, I don't care what happens before. And it's tougher when the letdown happens at the end. For example, for Flowers in the Angry Waves, the letdown is right at the end. You almost feel, this happens a lot too in his movies where even at the Fighting Elegy, there's a part two, but the part two never gets shot. In the Fighting Elegy, it doesn't matter because it's almost, I don't want to see him go to Manchuria again. Like, please, yeah. let's not find out the horrors of war. It works. But here uh, uh, in the Yakuza ones there, they sort of, they show you also aspects. It's another thing to give Suzuki credit. He, he shows you aspects of the real work, the sleaze of the real work a day of the Yakuza. It's not sort of Ken Takakura rescuing the family against yeah. the other clan. It's sort of workers and laborers in a wood logging camp or mining. Yeah, and this is Tattooed Life with, that you're discussing, which is about a pair of brothers. One is a, a Yakuza hitman who kills a mob boss during a double cross and has to take his brother and go on the run and they hole up in, a, in like a mining logging camp the, type. The place. brother kills the boss. Oh, the brother kills the boss defending yeah. him. The brother wants to go to art school during the double cross. So their life gets thrown up into a, to disarray. Again, the yeah. plots are hard to keep straight. All I know is that the brother, like my boy, Yumeji loves drawing nudes for horny losers. Yeah. And the brother <laughs> is the character that weighs down the whole movie because the love for his woman is it's not comprehensible. She's so irrational. Yeah, absolutely. He's so what? Is she's this? such would, like a plain Jane. It's bizarre. Yeah, she's in both of those. She's also the same woman in Flowers and the Angry Waves. And you're like, really? You're going to give up everything for her? I like the girl next to her on the train way better. Like, how are you so fascinated with her? And when she reveals her body to him and he draws her and he's like, she has to sculpt her. And I mean, you're constantly thinking like, why? I mean, just look at, at, the, at, the, at the girl at the bar is cooler. Like, like, you know, yeah. the, like when they get tricked and, and they sort of have to take work up because they can't really report to the authorities because their Yakuza is on the run. So they have to start working in these uh, uh, mining camps and sort of the things. It, it's that part is always hard to sit through because like operetta, like opera, although it like, does have a good fight scene where the guy just tackles them through the fucking wall and then they become fight brothers. It has a yeah. one good fight scene in that part. But you're yeah, right. that's true. And there's a lot of cool kind of funny comedy in the mining camp where uh, it's kind of a, a lot of slapstick stuff that that is OK. makes it bearable. These are not like big downturns for it. And it, it no, it's, but but you're right. It does build to his climax, which is his most stylish action scene, which is really fucking saying something. I think yeah. that this is the climax of really is the, the highest he goes as far as stylishness. And, and, and it, yeah. the glass floor is crazy. Yeah, and the, the, the flutes happen. It's kabuki right away through the music. But then there's also this throbbing synthesizer, which is like tangerine dream level. It's yeah. like, what is going on? It's like, wow. It's like these really warped sounds <laughs> happening. The muzzle flares in the dark room after doing this Alice in Wonderland. Like that of, scene in uh, Mabuse with the, yeah, but go on. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, the, the detective stalking him with the, with the sort of Wizard of Oz shoes, the Dorothy shoes through the yellow brick road. There's all these things and the glistening swords and the kind of, hidden shoji doors and he goes through through all these tunnels and rooms and it the, the action is so slow and stylized and it's very kabuki it's very they don't they barely touch each other i mean it's that not amazing really... shot that you pointed out uh, on twitter tony the uh, when the brother gets killed in the red line that just goes across the bottom of the 
of the screen. screen. Yeah, it goes mirrored with the whiteness of the train because the two things that symbolize the Yakuza life is always red and white. The white is death. So at the end of all the Yakuza movies, he's either in a white suit or it happens in the snow or the white card gets played. There's always white is coming, death is approaching and red is sort of the passion that comes before this. So when the brother dies, it's the red, the screen is tilted red. It kind of slashes across his, across his face. Sometimes even it's just like in the flowers and the angry waves, it's like a, a tint on the lens and it sort of signifies some kind of realization and inner realization that his boss is corrupt or something. And these moments are, are great because you obviously notice them and you take ownership of them early on. I think that's why also Suzuki works as a young film nerd discovering this stuff because you do get it all. You're like, oh, this is cool. This is stylish. I, I love this. I want to defend this against others. So Suzuki early on becomes somebody where you can kind of um, take ownership of him. And, yeah, and, and it's uh, and, it, and it's got a like a directness of like animation. I just rewatched uh, Chuck Jones's The Dot and the Line recently. Yeah, and they there's no similarity obviously between The Dot and the Line and Tattooed Life, but when I watch them, there is. There's just something about it that feels like the aesthetic strategies of trying to reduce the action and the themes and the emotions to a line and a dot in Suzuki that I think is really powerful and direct. Like you say, you can't miss it. You know, yeah. you sort of can't Ishi miss it. Yeah, Ishikawa has many of these things too. Like Connie Ishikawa does this in, in uh, amazing and um, um, uh, revenge of an actor and stuff. But yeah. I think this is what the ownership, I mean, is also why the scenic clubs respond so well to him, why they take ownership of him as opposed to all the other directors that work and make amazing stuff at Nikatsu, amazing Joshishiro movies like Tokyo Mighty Guy in 1960, has the glass floor already. He, he doesn't come up with the glass floor. There, there's many movies, it's even on the poster. Uh, and so uh, he takes all these things, but they somehow became Suzuki things. And it's not only because of the West, we interpret them because we have such a little crop of movies to compare them to, but it's because the scenic clubs really drove him. And like you said in your intro, the thing that really really uh, gave birth, Hori said that, uh, the, the thing that gave birth to Suzuki was his firing. That gave rise to yeah. the actor Suzuki and uh, the, 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 the filmmaker, the auteur Suzuki, which he wasn't before. And it's because this, they ban his movies. That was the ultimate mistake. They really forbid you to see yeah. this, is that the cine clubs rise against this. And that, I think it's interesting. I don't know if I mentioned in the intro that uh, Nagisa Oshima was one of the cine club people who was really a driving force behind it too. And it's fascinating to consider him and his history with censorship and all of that, or his future at that point with censorship as one of the driving forces. It's almost like primed for Oshima to take up his cause, all of this. Oh yeah, they were waiting. They were much more political and they were like, where Suzuki dodges the answers, Oshima tackles them directly and he's at the forefront. He's there with the red helmets and sort of uh, uh, storming the storming against the police and, and he's very much there. But I, I think it's, it's, that's almost, that's a huge, um, it's, it's a huge compliment sort of beyond the quirkiness that gets pointed out that you really do take ownership of these strange worlds. They, the way mm -hmm. you just accept certain gaps in, in logic and you, you can just sort of see these like in, in to maybe go back a little bit to Youth of the Beast because it's the one that hits so hard for, for everybody and does become his sort of staple. And I think almost like I would say without use of Youth of the Beast, it almost all falls apart. This is also interesting, I think in Suzuki that it takes one more 
It, yeah. It's not enough to have Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. You need Youth of the Beast. Without yeah. that one, it's not enough. And it's funny that it it's it doesn't it doesn't ride on this one masterpiece or something. It always needs his trilogies. It needs to have these yeah. repetitions. And, and Youth of the Beast is some of his first go for broke shit. It's a Red Harvest story, and he's just like going to take that as far as it can go. Did you know our, our website was almost called the Brown Flower? No, yeah, of course, kidding, because, gone, gone. of course, of course, because <laughs> it's the, the tinting of the flower that happens yeah. in the same year with high and low, that the pink smoke rises, and in the end, we have the flower tint. And actually, Youth of the Beast comes out before. It comes out in April, whereas uh, high and low comes out in November. So it predates high and low. Yeah. So I always wonder if Kurosawa went back and he's like, ah, oh, let me tint quickly that smoke. Do you think he back. watched any of Suzuki's movies? Kurosawa strikes me no, as the Kurosawa, kind of guy who's Kurosawa not a cinephile. Yeah, and he was the very opposite. He was um, seclusion and honing the blade like with three other masters and they're batting for Suzuki shot four movies by the time Kurosawa got only his, the beginnings of his script ready. Yeah. He's mapping out characters. He's, uh, Kurosawa's writing backstory that you will never see for each character. He's he making, wants to get Making tested. them sleep in the sets for four months while exactly. Suzuki is to... producing a movie and <laughs> getting like... into theaters. <laughs> yeah, and that's why Suzuki's resentment is something that's so interesting because it's something I love your 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 handle says oh, my brand is failure this is something that if you accept this it becomes a strength right like we yeah. have this as artists that obviously you need to understand that this is where the interesting stuff happens but they're obviously these transcendent masters to which we look up to but you don't know how to be them I don't know yeah. how to be that guy but I know how, Suzuki I can get into I can get into somebody who's wrestling with a bunch of things and then salvaging somehow some things and it's sort of interesting how the outside takes then and takes you somewhere yeah. else which not necessarily agrees with always I would absolutely. also say Kurosawa would absolutely disagree with something that I love that Suzuki said about Kanto Wanderer which is it doesn't matter if a film is boring as long as it embodies an idea. Yeah. Seems like Kurosawa could not make a boring movie. No, and know? to Kurosawa, it was like, he's almost, he has the same Japanese humbleness to where he, he could be grander about everything. He downplays everything, but he always says far foremost, it has to be entertaining. Everything, it has to be entertaining. And so Kurosawa doesn't leave any fat on the bone. Everything that's, furthers that's the, the plot. That's Everything. the Henry James. The sole yeah. responsibility of a writer is to be interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I and think that's that why a these... lot of greats think that. Yeah, and and Kurosawa is like not regarded as a Japanese filmmaker. This is also very interesting that the Japanese didn't take ownership of Kurosawa at all, like they did of Suzuki. Suzuki is mm -hmm. one of them. And even though the, the it's important that the youth movement rebels we cannot forget he kept making movies for the studio they were not yeah. always again i mean he turned out movies and movies that people would see well that's the the quote from the executive who was on his side uh imori said you know like uh, of course i'm his advocate i'm rich because of him you know is essentially yeah. the quote i think it's you know i get paid a princely salary because of suzuki that he made successful movies he churned them out and they're all getting rich there when it's working because filmmakers like Suzuki are making interesting movies for no money on a quick dime. Um, just to locate the audience in the rest of this episode, I think we should talk about three more chunks. I'd like to talk about the three women's movies as a, as a group, the Suffering Women movies, then 
Tokyo Drifter and uh, Branded to Kill as a natural pair. And then a little bit at the end, touch on the Taisho trilogy and then that sort of mini comeback uh, curtain call at the end of his career as a, as a group. So this next group, it's, it's the three movies I mentioned before, Gate of Flesh from 1964, Story of a Prostitute from 1965, and Carmen from Kawachi in 1966. Uh, Gate of Flesh is one of his most very famous movies. This is where he leans most into the MGM musical aesthetic and it's about a group of the beguiled that's all you have to say right (laughs) it's about a group of women prostitutes in post-war japan who are living in a burned out building who a wounded soldier as in the beguiled played by joe shishido comes under their care and disrupts everything when one of them falls in love with him well when all of them fall (laughs) fall into lust with him uh against their rules and in fact they're quite cruel with their rules you get your head shaved you get beat it's uh, a lot of stiff penalties for falling in love story of a prostitute is about a group of women prostitutes during the sino-japanese war who are sent to an outpost in manchuria where they are uh, more or less uh conscripted to be the uh, women working this this military outpost where they're going to be servicing hundreds of soldiers just the the handful of them and the main character who is played by uh, Yumiko Nagawa, who is one of the leads in Gate of Flesh, um, gets made the personal girl of the commander of this military unit who really sucks while she's falling in love with a different soldier. Played by uh, the Tomio Kuachi that we've talked about from Suzuki's Youth and Revolt films. And the last film is Carmen from Kawachi, which is the weirdest one of these movies. It's about a aimless young woman who gets, uh, ends up in the world of prostitution and the making of pornography sort of um, falls into it where she's at first just trying to land a rich husband. Uh, Unlike the others, this is not a period piece. Um, And Tony, of these three, they're very different. Gate of Flesh is MGM Candy Colored Musical. Carmen is a modern, uh, it's called Carmen from Koichi because it's sort of a modern rock and roll retelling of Bazette's Carmen. And uh, Story of a Prostitute is a much more traditional black and white wartime melodrama. Do you, which of these three do you prefer? Uh, Carmen is, my, I think, my second favorite Suzuki movie. So that's uh, after the fighting elegy. It's so rare that he can get this emotional depth uh, ever out of. And there's a scene at the heart of this where it's sort of the couple in a fake argument, but their emotions, their their acting is telling us something different. But in order to break up with with her, he has to the sort of loser guy that sort of like she finds at the beginning before she can go into the rich handlers uh, is somebody who really does care for her. And in order to, when she finally announces, Hey, you're, you're dirt, get away from me. I got to move on in the world. And he sort of accepts his fate in this really touching way where he's a sleazebag before. And he sort of just accepts his fate and says, uh, thank you so much for this time. You've always been amazing. I could have never hoped and dreamed to be with somebody like you. She's like, no, I did, that's no good. I mean, you have to tell me fuck off. You have to throw me out. I cannot leave you like this. This is heartbreaking. And sort of the scene that these guys are acting um, 
It is amazing. I think that's, I think the most emotional, I think the depth that, that we see here that Suzuki ever gets. And uh, yeah. I love this. And it, it's filled with amazing set pieces and sort of a Wes Anderson thing again, where the house is cut in half. And like you said, it, it touches on all the nerve endings of Nikatsu and it has a precursor of all the cool women revenge movies that happened in the seventies. Um, and it's just filled with stylish moments. The, again, there is no fat, like everything has carries meaning when this perverse monk uh, like stretches his arms across. So formally it's a beautiful shot, but also he steals her ring off her finger in the end. And so everything is double and everything is, it's really economic and, 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 and just, just a great movie that, that that's one. I'm so uh, glad yeah. that you brought this one up because it wasn't on your initial list. And yeah, then you came, came back later and said, guys, we, you got to watch this one too. And my initial thought was not another one. Oh no. But yeah. I think it's top three for me too. I love this movie. I love the uh, relationship with the guy who tries the role reversal where he's doing all the house cleaning and the, uh, and the cooking and everything. And he's trying yeah, to like, I love that his over. pitch is like, stay with the weak man. Sometimes it's nice to live with a total pussy. I love yeah. that. That's his pitch. <laughs> But yeah, all these like segments, these little series of uh, domestic uh, episodes that we go through with this woman leading up into this uh, final kind of retribution and murder for, you know, against all men is uh, just so good. Oh, you're right. No fat. It's just uh, very and lean and very fun film. It has many moments that remind me of Clute and, and it's sort of Jane Fonda finding herself. But even the, the scenes in the model a agency where they're all lined up against these big shots of these heads. It's, 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 it's so interesting how the framing happens of this woman that is sort of a prostitute and she has to go, but she wants to do better and she's rising, but then she's held back by the, these men, these losers. Uh, uh, Koji Wada half comes back here as a sort of like, he has this dream of total jerk. And the first yeah. scene when he all but three, it's like the beginning of Kabiria when he almost yeah, throws her raped, in the water. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then she gets gang raped. And I mean, her life starts from there. Her mother sort of sleeping with this sleazy monk and he keeps appearing as this haunted specter and he's distorted the camera lens really distorts him he keeps luring through these modern art sculptures uh and it it's it's uh, the 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 formal things while it doesn't have yeah the house is a big set piece but it doesn't have and there's a great scene with almost like a Clouseau Mister Picasso when he there's shot through Tamio Kawachi plays yeah the painting himself, helps her. the painting is shot through this pane of glass and it obstructs their portrait something he copies later for Pistol Opera uh, that's a uh, great he uses shot. it all over the Taisho trilogy yeah strategy exactly like and. Um, there's, there's this is one of my favorite Suzuki shots, like we said, that that X in the nightclub where, where all of a sudden she has the classic Carmen pose with the rose in her mouth and he sort, sort of does the Spanish dance on the bar. And all of a sudden she comes, this low camera angle zooms up and she's framed against this giant X. And there's another one where this sleazeball, this sort of uh, sorry little guy is waiting outside the club for her and there's a red, big sign that says, angel and neon and he yeah. sort of his head just peeks around the corner and next to him appears this giant neon angel and he's sort of a punctuate his head is like kind of the punctuation of that neon sign and there's so many like really refined cool moments here that that really hit home and they all drive the story forward they're not like the other ones where there's a jarring cool set piece and then uh jump to the next here it all furthers character and it's 
really honed. It's Consider, considering it's part of this period, you know, from this point on, where it, pretty much everything from here has been celebrated and made available in the states. Yeah. It's weird that this one has really fallen by the wayside. I have no yeah. explanation for that. I, I and tell you because it's just uh, it's a sorry state, really. When when what gets picked up is so dumb. I mean, there's no explanation. Ten dark women is a really good aperitif how you always do in your other yeah. literature podcasts which i always get like oh, i want to pick this in the movie <laughs> 10 dark women by connie chikawa is a great uh side piece to this because it's also a women revenge story that's yeah. so smart and you see the abuse of these women have to go through you see them they are modern women asserting themselves in this society but it's so clever and funny the whole time through the men yeah. are losers and they're sad sacks this movie is very funny too exactly what you're saying yeah. i haven't seen 10 dark women uh I, I, oh, man. I should see it one of the things i like about this this movie is how carefully it delineates the process of sort of turning a woman into a professional sex object where it has the like her job at the bar is like a proto coyote ugly a like come in you're not a sex worker but you are going to jump up on the bar and be hot that's your job yeah. is get up on the bar and be hot or when Sell she goes the to the house to live with the uh the the predatory lesbian at first and she passes the guy who the moment he sees her pulls out the measuring tape and measures the width of her ass on yeah. the stairs immediately and is like, hey, I could do something with this. And then she's convinced to star in a movie, right? And the movie turns out to be one of these sort of pinky violence Roman porno movies that Nakatsu was getting in the business of making, right? And she gets on set. That's a phenomenal sequence. Talk about oh, the, the stylistic wall of light, yeah. the wall of lights and the guys behind the screen. And that's a direct dig at Nakatsu because Nakatsu would come back and just exclusively make these kind of movies. This is why I think it's the one that got him fired. You also have with Gate of Flesh, a lot of the Nakatsu regular actresses were like, I am not doing this movie. This is porno. So he had to import new actresses for it, right? And that's that's one of the first meaningful times he works with Yumiko. So he's using this actress as a commentary on what Nukatsu is becoming as an organization as well, very directly. And then, you know, all of this is tied to romance and relationships that the financial stability of a relationship gets tied to sex work. And as her life develops, there's no line between sex life and sex work, which I think is a very interesting way of explicating that, People, it's not like story of a prostitute where you get put on a truck and driven somewhere and you're a prostitute and that's how it worked. You know, that it's sort of the way her life expands and the moral definitions and moral boundaries that she would theoretically have bleed away. You know, it's a much very, it's not like gate of flesh where it's like, you do this or you won't eat. If you want fucking pineapple, you got to do this. You know, mm. if you want a can of pineapple, you got to do this. It's much more uh, subtle than those movies. It's much more complicated. And what her relationship to it is much more complicated until you have this almost supernatural ending where she takes him up to, to throw the guy off of the waterfall. And there's something incredibly spiritual about this ending, incredibly... Uh, transcendental supernatural to that sequence it reminds me a lot of the taisho trilogy and in fact in his early films i see almost nothing of the taisho trilogy except in that moment except in that final sequence i also see in that final sequence this is the movie uh it reminds me of vengeance of mine and intentions to murder this is the movie where i most see emma Muir in him this is a very insect woman history of post-war japan is told by a bar hostess kind of film as well and i think that that's i love emma Muir, one of my very favorite directors 
directors. There's basically no higher compliment I have than this reminds me of Emma and, yeah, and you and guys I, made the ultimate Imamura podcast. I go back to that episode so many times with Martin Kessler. Yeah, uh, it's it's such a great episode. It's like an all timer for me. It's just I could listen to it over when it ends. I just want to put it back on. And it's it's <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's it's um, Imamura. He goes to such an obsession with Imamura because it and I can put myself in those shoes when somebody like Imamura, who's so strong willed that he almost manages to be to do oppose his will, even though he has the same set of circumstances yeah. as Suzuki, he's managing to make these really a pictures all the time with not much more than Suzuki has. And he's able to just by strength of character to assert himself against all these heads. He's like Fellini. He's playing the, the, he's playing the executives against each other and he's still yeah. managing to do his vision. And so Suzuki, the torment of being shown like in Kanto Wandra as a B picture to Imamura's Insect Woman, he's like, he watches Insect Woman and then he purposefully crafts scenes to fit or play off Insect Woman. But this yeah. is a war solely in his mind. Imamura yeah. takes no notice, no one else does, but he's still carrying on this. And this, I think, is then the full reason for the Taisho trilogy later on when he goes independent like Imamura did. He wants to indulge in these things and show, like, yes. I can make profound pictures. I can make pictures, which I found weaker than his yeah. pictures when he has to deal and wrestle with these problems and find solutions. But yeah, that's no. just because that's his character. And over the mm -hmm. times, you cannot sort of deny who you have become. He's become this guy after 40 movies. He wishes he was Imamura or Fellini, and he resents them. But that's why he goes and makes Pistol Opera again, which is almost like Ghostbusters with women, right? And he goes back yeah. and... Branded to it's kill. it's his like, blues brothers 2000 there's no <laughs> doubt that's what pistol opera has <laughs> exactly it's it's a, no it's a come out and play the hits tour you know it's exactly. like when some old but musician gets rediscovered yeah yeah exactly and and, and it's in it it's because he gets lauded for those other movies and he gets actually his final recognition by doing it and so, so he should feel great satisfaction he's like guys yeah. look i've made art movies and the world loves me for it he wins in berlin and and so but he somehow he 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 knows that he had something special in those other movies yeah. after 40 years he looks back and everybody that talks to him every fan that comes up to him brings him like a still of canto wanderer or, or uh Tokyo yeah. drifter and he's like no no but look uh, but berlin loves me uh for for the taisho trilogy and we're all like oh my god the, the yeah. scene the color coding and the bar scene with the blue jacket like and he's like he's very he's annoyed but when nobody asks he would be hurt as well that's the sort of the crux of the artist yeah and i think Imamura also with the Imamura, a, oh sorry yeah. not to interrupt i was gonna say i definitely when i make movies there's filmmakers i watch and it's absurd in your head because you watch them and you look at well that's just an apartment and these are just two actors and this is all very simple i i could do that I could do that. I could do this. It's just a romance. It's about their broken love. It's just this one apartment. He's got these great landscapes. I should go out tomorrow and make a movie as good as Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai. And then you look at it and you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's not that that simple, you know, but you get those ideas in your head. And I definitely understand because you're right. Like, for whatever reason, Emimira is the one he's focused on as his bugaboo. I think because they're both transitional directors, they're sort of in between the guys 
who are older, the older generation, and they're distinctly not part of the new wave, even though they sort of get lumped in with them. They're just not like those younger guys. They're not like Wakamatsu or Oshima, you know? They they are transitional. They're like the two major transitional yeah, and art Oshima, figures in Japan. Right, and Oshima is generous. Like you say, he supports Suzuki. He has no problems. He's a master that can be generous because yeah. it comes easy to him. Uh, Imamura is transcendent of this. He He's one of those guys that you admire because he enters a room and his personality just asserts himself. He doesn't have to work at and it. And when he feels he like he's feel lost his artistic way, he just goes and lives on an island for a year and makes and, a documentary just because he's like, I'm not sure I'm doing it right. And it's like, that is fucking And you admire balls. this freedom. Yeah, you admire, <laughs> it's one of those guys you admire his freedom and he plays always is somehow by his own set of rules where we all are hindered by our objections. They're not, the, the set is shoddy. Well, there's not enough extras here. Yeah. I often describe, when, when I described this early on to my wife and something's like, why are you always complaining and unhappy? And it's like, because in my head, I see this movie that I want to direct and then I come on set and everything is not there. It's shoddy. I don't have yeah. enough uh, 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 gang members like where the, the, the set is all wrong like this is and sort of slowly falls apart throughout the day but at, but it's at, interesting i would say just to to round it back that that carmen from kawachi is the one where i feel like he gets all the way there you know yeah. that that if you like the early movies this is the one where he does i'd say he gets to the level of imamura uh in a very um in a very uh, uh concrete uh, way that I really like. I really admire this movie. It is the it is the movie that that sort of, and he's still himself. He's not imitating anybody else. You know, I, I should should point out that this movie is in no way an, an imitation of Emma Muir, an imitation of any other filmmaker. This is in the way that Branded to Kill is taking the abstract action as far as it can possibly go. This is taking the more serious aspects of his movie that exist in them, the sort of nihilistic spiritual aspects. Ishikawa gets there uh, like uh, five years before and uh, and he he does it again. Kon Ishikawa is somebody who defies categories. Yes. He's just a fucking master from the get-go. And he does every genre he takes on. It's a masterpiece. We talk about that. And it's actually also it's mind-boggling that all his movies or Okamoto's movies don't have a box set. I mean, we just yeah. know so little in the West. And they, they all make parts of things. And I think Suzuki's really uniquest kind of contribution to this is, is the Tokokan amalgam which this is the last book he adapts yeah. by him and it's the fighting elegy is then his take with kanito shindo together he sort of takes those lessons and he makes the fighting elegy and that becomes his suzuki like take carmen take the bastard and then make the fighting elegy yeah the one the my one last note about about carmen from uh, kawachi is that i love when she at the bar does like the rock version of la habanera and cannot come close to hitting the high notes so it's nice. this song that famously spans like octaves pressed into like one octave it's just like the the most amazingly squashed down version of it and in some ways i think this movie is like a squash down opera like if you squash down an opera and put it into a b-movie box this is what be what it is and like the house where the house is split in half you mentioned with the spotlight the painting through the glass and you're looking at him through glass there's a lot of experimental theater tactics for this movie as well on top of it and it just has it has an incredible 
quality to it this movie it has it has just such a fantastic quality but you wonder if the prisoner the tv show was influenced by suzuki at all because it uses similar kind of like surreal spotlights kind of coming out of nowhere and even the question that comes up in ready to kill who is number one is like the main question of the prisoner but some of the pop mentality i think kind of bleeds into that show yeah, that, that's, I think a lot of the critics are always looking for answers in high, other high art, where I think for Suzuki, it's, it's a lot in the pop culture. It's, a, it's a much more in manga. It's, it's in, in things that a lot of the, the stylized of the battle sequences, those characterizations with the pots on the head, making the weapons, all these cool little quirks and tricks that bleed into character again for Suzuki are coming out of pop culture is happening in japan through monster movies and 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 jidageki oshima makes the animation movie a uh, cool ninja one of the best ninja band of assassins yeah. animation ninja movie and so also konishikawa comes from animation so a lot of this the shorthand of animation the way the stylized cuts of things that we see um uh, in Carmen, when she throws up the money, it's like really disjointed. Yeah. And, and really, this is all kind of manga editing and, and the way the pages split up and or story of a prostitute when the picture breaks in half or the photo gets torn and it fits back together or something. Yeah. When the you character did... literally becomes a photograph that gets Yeah. Torn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think it, I also think it's, it's very French new wavy. I think in the sixties, if you're somebody who's playing with editing and, and, and uh, and post that the French New Wave is an influence, and I think that this movie is the one where he hits closest to the emotional timber of the French New Wave of something like uh, of Jewels and Jam or yeah. or, or Breathless, you know. Yeah, and he feeds back into through John Borman into American culture because you know branded to kill uh, Youth of the Beast, it really is like point blank i mean all the color coding and it's 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 i made tons of side by sides coming out of the shadows it's all suzuki and they always go oh point blank is like the the uh, the the essence of french and british film gangster techniques it's like no it's suzuki it's absolute suzuki we know branded to kill and point blank let's jump into branded to kill and and tokyo drifter branded to kill is so similar to point blank it even he even gets shot by betrayed shot in the gut and it hits his belt buckle to stay alive yeah, which is yeah. what what happens in the uh, in the book and the color obviously comes from youth of the beast all the yellow yeah. rooms the, the the kind of the, that amazing storm scene where he beats her outside the but where the, he's the, having the the thing projected on his face yeah and just exactly, so the... so similar to it and branded to kill and where he's it's not even clear broken what he's mirrors, after yeah. at the branded to kill he's just completely losing his mind in the way that lee marvin's character is a ghost basically and point yeah they feel this happens also in the yakuza films in the in the main yakuza ones the trilogy we talked about before tattooed life and so they're almost fulfilling a destiny of yakuza they're playing yakuza theater in a way that the others around them are not even acting anymore the, the world has moved on it's it's a modern world but they are always dressed very traditional and for better or worse that's why they're often stupid characters because they just have to fulfill this code that's laid out yeah. before them and you're like oh just adapt to this moment no 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 i have to play this game i have to live by these this under this invisible code no matter what is the outcome yeah and this this fatality obviously plays into the assassin movies later as well yeah and let's so let's talk about tokyo drifter and branded kill tokyo drifter is about a he's sort of a masterless samurai he's a a hitman with no clan to which he's attached who drifts through 
Yakuza bullshit of all of his movies. This is the one because he was told to behave or you'll be fired. So he made this movie, uh, the, the star. Yeah, he, this one. Yeah. Well, it was Tetsuya Watari was, uh, was, was told uh, he's, a, he's like a, a pop idol, make a movie where he gets to sing a song and is a criminal tough guy and just do that. So he follows uh, the rules. He sort of paints within the numbers on this, but uses crazy colors while painting within the numbers. So this was a strike against him because Nakatsu executives sort of like, well, you did what we said, but we know you're fucking with us. You are on thin ice. And then branded to kill is the opposite where he makes a, he reduces, it's a story about um, a criminal organization, the number three killer played by Joe Shishido is uh, screws up a hit so now the hit is out on him and potentially the number one killer is coming to kill the number three killer. And the number three killer is obviously uh, a reference. This whole thing is loaded up with history to it, Branded to Kill by the time it gets to Branded to Kill. And it was written by a, uh, under a pseudonym of the group of eight that wrote the script together. It's all about everything that's that's sort of happened in genre cinema leading up to that point even him being the number three killer is a reference to quick draw joe where he's the number three quick draw man in the world right that it's just carrying all this baggage forward into it and these are the two where you really see these are his most famous because these are the ones that his myth of fighting with nakatsu is built around these two movies and where you can most clearly see the stakes and what he's done and his reaction to that. Tokyo Drifter is doing what he's supposed to in a way that ends up being insane. And uh, Branded to Kill is him not doing what he's supposed to in a way that ends up being insane, you know? The way he's not playing to the audience anymore either. I feel like the woman who gets killed laughing at the comic book incessantly is almost like symbolic of like murdering the entertainment value of a gangster movie, you know? Um, Yeah. My my main reaction to Tokyo Drifter is that with this and Tokyo Nights, uh, the plots could be resolved if Japanese people just didn't use seals on stuff <laughs> to make contracts official. You got no movie that. <laughs> no, do you do you respond to these two, Tony? Because like you said yeah. before, these are like the famous ones. These two leave me a little bit com- cold in comparison to everything else. And so I was curious what you thought about them in terms of that. I do because I took those are the first two I saw. I said maybe Youth of the Beast. Those the, the, this trilogy from cemented it for me. This was a long time movies I would show to impress people or like yeah. like, hey, look at this. You won't you won't believe what I got. Yeah. And then it would never fail because they are especially branded to kill because it speaks so much. It has less of the garishness. So these are all like you said reactions to punishments by Nikatsu, and he manages to build absolute kind of castles out of of the sand heap that he's given he's giving weird actors less budget and he's making art installations and he's going crazy and they are right like i said at the beginning i never thought of them weird this is maybe the first time i saw them weird so the opposite reaction uh to john where you maybe saw quality in them now i'm like yeah, they are fucking weird. And I, yeah. they are. At first time, it's the first it's time not I that read. they leave me cold. I just don't go bananas for them. Maybe because I, I'm, I'm told a, I'm supposed to go bananas. I'm a huge, um, like you just summed up the plot. I'm a huge Japanophile and manga guy. And especially I love 
watching professionals. I love the mechanic. I love the minutiae of a job, especially assassins. I love all this stuff. Yeah. Like the set, it's always too little for me. I could watch the whole beginning but, of the but mechanic. Tokyo could Drifter be has, three hours. has the plot mechanic I hate more than fucking anything, which is the hero goes away and holes up to extend the running time. Like when there's like two thirds of the way through the film, the hero just like goes and hides for 12 but, minutes because there's but, nothing left to do with the plot, but go to the climax and you haven't spent enough time yet. But the great thing about Tokyo Drifter is that he encounters uh, people like Shooting Star and Viper yeah. and his name is Phoenix. No, it's and, really and it, cool. It, I'm being way it too has, hard on it. It has, it has this thing where I always, uh, the brawl scene is so dumb. Like I, I thought of it at the time, it's dumb. And it's exactly proving your point that despite these moments, it still holds together because you got the duel with the train sequence and the snow and even Watari, even the singing never bothered you, me you until what, I read. You know what this movie reminds me of? This just occurred to me. When we did the Melville podcast a long time ago, yeah. people get pissed because my opinion is that I love the Samurai. It's a great movie. It's also one of Melville's least interesting because it's totally stripped away everything but the narrative mechanics like it is a vehicle yeah. that is not street legal right he's just ripped away everything and it's the same thing with tokyo drifter where he's ripped away everything but the very basic mechanics and then built this very flashy strange thing on top of it and it is incredibly flashy and strange i when I, it's very rarely anytime i watch movies now I, I, it's very rare for me to look at and go, oh, I don't know how the hell they did that shot. And that yeah. happens repeatedly in this movie. Like the opening, I was like, it's this weird solarized black and white. And I was like, I have no fucking clue how they did this. If you gave me that and I could put it in after effects, I don't think I could create this effect. It's so strange. And I mm. looked it up and it was expired film stock he that used. That opening is amazing. Yeah. And it's like, do you Gorgeous. know how crazy that is? You don't know what you're going to get. It's him no. like going out have, on the high wire and like I was, doing a flip. And you're at some point, I got to go, all right, all right. I do incredibly respect this. I do incredibly respect exactly. the Sam and, They're amazing, but they're like torn down to their essentials. Yeah. And my old uh, VHS rip copy and stuff before the restoration, I was even... Blacker. Like that's yeah. why my poster is only I don't have any colors on my Tokyo Drifter posters, only the black heads and the suits coming out of yeah. them because I thought that was so awesome. And I prefer the black and white, I prefer the black the look of branded to kill. But uh, the DNA is the 10 Elio Petri, 10th victim, completely yeah. like Ursula Andres with the, the weird rule of the killers, but you are a hunter and you're a killer and you're stalking me and these weird pop culture outfits. And it, it, there's so much around the world that's happening. And what we forgot to mention, this is specifically for John and me to geek out over the bond it's it's the phenomenon <laughs> in the 60s of bond it cannot be diminished the cat stroking i mean it's all over youth of the beast it's, it's like blofeld it's it's from russia with love which happens at the same time and and bleeds into the whole entire world into every story that's told how men are looked at how women behave it's all bond with the weird uh boardroom of 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 assassins and 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 all this stuff uh happens and and Fleming visits Japan in the late 50s and takes a lot of the Japanese cool stylized plots for his uh you only live twice with the the thread the assassination thread from the he takes from the uh shinobi yeah. uh, movies that he sees uh happening at the time and so there's this cross-cultural bleeding into a kind of where Suzuki Den and Tokyo Drifter can 
make a passiflage, can make a parody of the baby powder suit, but they all behave like Bond. There's all this secret code. They are assassins, but they, 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 um, it's clear that they have to face off against the Viper in the snow. And why are you not getting off the tracks? Because it's more dramatic. And so and then he sings and he wanders off and, and singing the song. So I, I always love those, getting back to that question, I always love those two movies uh, the, the the fantastic set designs, like you said, that that Pompeii room and then the trapdoor nightclub. It's like he just falls through and then he crawls out through a real Batman set. That is the Riddler set. The painted pipes, yeah. like in the nightclub, and you see them all dancing from the bottom. And it's it's just so much extravaganza all the time. And and it's held together by I think this what I appreciate always the man with no name. We have no backstory. There's no love story. Yeah. I love that. I, I just love the lone wolf. Um, yeah, assassin. the production design, you know, the, the Takeo Kimura, you know, collaboration. Yeah. For me, uh, Chris already brought up, you know, a Chuck Jones comparison. Reminds me of Chuck Jones and Maurice Noble and the yeah. uh, apartment, the, the building that they bought that the yeah. Yakuza gang steal from the, the beginning where the woman with the comic book is. Just the structure of that reminds me of Duck Dodgers in the 24th and half century so much when mm. uh, they're just these floors Things, out in yeah. space that go nowhere you know and they're not connected to anything and it's just this and for me that's when it clicked watching the movie this time this space this unreliable surreal space that these characters are in that of course he's got to go drifting and that's the whole point of the movie he's got to get away from this fucking weird space yeah it's like a video game you're right like i never thought of this like weird fences everywhere you have to jump over it's like a bowser level fireballs would come out <laughs> trap doors you fall down yeah, it's like snow trenches yeah it's 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 another level that you enter and then he goes to the to the farmhouse and, and, the, and he meets shooting star and that's the felix leiter character and he's so much better than in man with the shotgun as the as the lead he's great as the sidekick who patches him up and then he uh, uh and of course the, the the end set that white set is like a franz west installation of the venice biennale yeah. those donuts mm, it's like yes. macaroni art meets yeah. venice biennale <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's like, also this is this is the obvious that like you hear with him but we should mention just in case listeners don't know those sets are like obvious references to singing in the rain or like the girl oh, hunter yeah. sequence from bandwagon like they're straight out of mgm musicals too that is that is the first obvious level that we should just touch on before yeah. we do two advanced studies yeah, and yeah. Uh, i mean those hallways the fred astaire running away the gangster stylizations and yeah yeah it's, and it's, how his movies build to action sequences the way the mgm musicals build to musical numbers where it's exactly what you're saying if you watch a lot of old mgm musicals there's a lot of between the songs bullshit that at certain point you're like I'm just fast forwarding through this and a lot of more to get to the musical numbers and Suzuki's films suffer from that at times they're like get me to the interesting stuff this is just the standard filler you yeah. know it frequently happens with him. yeah there's a great shot in Youth of the Beast that's exactly from the stars born when Judy Garland's framed for those roses and it's exactly Joe luring in at the end yes. and it's these bullet holes kind of framed by those roses just around him while he like observes everything <laughs> it's Cukor and it's Minelli and yeah the 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 gate of flesh is that the, the uh, American in Paris the fashion sequence and they're they're very clear or the century sequence in uh singing the rain the whole gangster yeah. thing it's feels like tokyo drifter but like if you told me they filmed it on the same set that was shot on i'd go oh of course you know I can't think like, it. is I there a musical that. number a famous musical number where they're disembodied where they 
leap out of their bodies and they're dancing around, sort of like the scene in Youth of the Beast where the junkie uh, is sees the the dealer Guy running away with her stash. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe, Nothing's maybe, uh, like, like, um, like interacting with uh, with uh, the cartoon with Jerry. Mm. Um, yeah, the only um, one that's coming to mind is Sherlock Jr. That's the only thing that's coming to mind where he goes out of his <laughs> right. body and then does the action. Yeah, they're, they're early surrealist German movies like in the 20s. Like I always hold those up and nobody wants to talk about them because nobody knows about them. But they're like Karl Valentin was just a German surrealist comedian who was before Bunuel and nobody yeah. knows this. There's a movie called The Barbershop and they, they, he does, he cuts off somebody's head and gets reattached and they're yeah. amazing, like amazing. Like there well, was a German like stand-up scene which nobody believes. No, there was a German... Uh, because everybody, yeah, there, there was a dark, dark, amazing humor that's untranslatable, unfortunately, in Austria and, 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 and Germany. That was sort of a rise of going parallel to the Jewish culture, which then gets explodes in America. But it comes from that Viennese dark, pessimistic outlook. And they have a lot of those like surreal just experiments but they're not movies that hang together but they experiment crazy with the i already told tony find access to these and we will make it our next episode yeah it uh, but that's <laughs> going to be impossible it's like italian comedies it's just the humor you have to really speak the language i, I find it so frustrating even to to yeah, i cannot imagine reading thomas banhard in english thomas yeah. banhard it's impossible like you ever every, have you ever seen satyajit ray's comedies no. Oh, they're fucking awful. Like Goopy and Bagha, you like nothing travels worse than comedy. Like yeah. it's it's really the, does uh, not not even. No, I really only seen the the faint the sort of yeah the clat the, well, the me, ones yeah yeah. Let and me yeah, ask I, you this: with with Branded to Kill, the standard story is that he's pushing it too far. He's almost trying to get fired. It's almost like an act of self-immolation. Do you think that's the case or what do you think he's doing I, with this yeah, movie? I didn't think so until this time around. <laughs> I always looked at this. This is a classic, awesome, stylized, straightforward gangster story. Like you said, I love this. I love it. This is all the plot I need. Number one, three killer goes after this. He breaks the rules. He botches the job. Now he's becoming the hunted. That's for me, Bear. I need nothing more and I can watch yeah. only style and surface. I don't want to delve into his background. I don't want to know anything. But this time around, what really struck me in which I always kind of forget is that beyond the minutia of the killings and those stylizations that, that Jarmusch picks up on, it's that weird, raw romance between the killers, the sexuality yeah. that John Woo can never admit to, this weird homosexual couple and their guns that live in this apartment together. And I never thought like, Nick they start like, peeing Why are they on each other. He's pissing and then emptying out his shoe while they're hand in hand and arm in arm. And I'm all of a sudden I'm like, yes, Nikatsu would go, what the fuck? I told you after tattooed <laughs> life, tone it down. And the two answers he gives them is Tokyo drifter, which is like, you're ruining our star. <laughs> what are you doing with this guy? He's a pompous yeah. idiot that goes around in a, in a powder baby suit singing. And then the next one you give us, it looks cool. It sounds smooth with all the jazz, the stylized fog. But then at the end, it dissolves into the mind of this killer. It has no more reason. It really, the sexuality is gross when he finally sleeps with her and he grabs that yucky bird and it yeah. just pulls it out of her somehow, out of her body. And it becomes this insane. Actually really reminds me of the uh, woman torturing the bird in uh, Voice Without a Shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, there are lots of precursors leading up to this. Was so fascinating about watching them all 
together in this this mass that he kernels of ideas happen and all of a sudden he, they become shorthand and become part of his palette that he's now able to paint with quickly. Or it's also crazy to think about the films we've discussed through now. This is like nine years of a career. Yeah. That's yeah. like that's like a half a Kubrick movie. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all that preparation that Kurosawa or Kubrick would do before he just shoots and he keeps shooting and he shoots through the man with the shotgun. He just keeps going and going and going. And he incorporates stuff like Joe's idea, like I want to hang upside down and like, yeah, that's yeah. impractical, but let's just do that and let's do it again in Branded to Kill. He's hanging upside down again. And <laughs> and this sort of scenes in the, especially now during this weird, crazy lockdown horror show oh, that yeah. we're all living through. It's like now this paranoia in this apartment at the end, this claustrophobicness, but then also like weird little comic time jumps that he runs down the steps, but in the same shot, the car drives off. We understand it's him, but it's, it's, it's a shorthand now. Yeah. It's, we're not playing out this long winded scene. He's, he's going down the steps. That's boring, but I don't want to cut. And the car drives off. We understand what's happening. They're not nonsensical. They're more, they're more perverse and less of the fashion that Nikatsu wants. They want titillation. They want to see a, some panties when the girl is falling or something. Well, but it's almost aggressive this, how naked everybody is in this movie, all the women. Yeah, this is, it's, it's a psychotic amount of nudity that feels pointed. It feels like you want nudity. I'm going to make every woman naked for no reason at all times in this film. Just everybody's, everybody's naked. Everybody's uh, nobody can. Everybody's uh, impotent unless you get raped or you have food involved. The bed remains yeah. untouched when they have all those sex games. The bed it keeps showing the bed. There's no yeah. not a wrinkle in the sheets because all their games and this this perversity played against this modern Japanese, which everybody is proud of. The the, the economic boom, the modern apartments, which Joe's trapped in by all these rules of Japaneseness. He gets turned on by the rice. And this is something yeah. we have to point out again in the fighting elegy. He makes fun of that Japanese, this local pride in Aizu. Yeah. The Aizu spirit. He just can't. One of my favorite bits. The Aizu spirit's a load of shit, Tony, and you know it. Exactly. (laughs) And then he says like, oh, I used to be a genius, but I masturbated too much. And now I write haiku because that's what he did. And have trouble remembering things. Well, the fighting elegy idea, right? Of like walking in the middle of the road, but you only, you know, but but you get out of the way if something is going to run you over is like what Suzuki is against, I think, in these movies. He wants to keep walking in the middle of the road even if it's a bus coming at him, you know? So like you, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so almost like a metaphor for that scene. Like he, he, like you, you, you asked, I think now it's very clear that he kind of sabotages in a way that's almost not like fire me or else or something, but he's almost like, I'm sick of it. I cannot bear another plot boiler and and, and pot boiler where I have to take on somebody else. I'm going to take these aborted scripts that you're forcing me to go on. I don't want to do it. I, I But now, okay, I'm doing this stuff with it. And I, I don't know whether, and, and things like the fighting elegy and Carmen lead me to believe he is really that good now. You know, we really can do a branded to kill where, yeah where things get just off the rockers weird with this couple and, and these assassins living out their lives and, and, and Tokyo Drifter, which is just this technicolor musical number after another. And he, they are really special. They are, they hold their own place, even though what yeah. I keep pointing out is there are so many movies that happened before or at the time, which employ the same techniques and the same humor and the same garish sensibilities, but they're just not known to us. 
And, and we, the we reason why to kill. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And the reason is, is really the cine clubs that they champion Suzuki. Suzuki yeah. becomes their uh, mascot for yeah. all their other angry uh, outrage against society, and sort of that's why. Hori says Suzuki really is born by our firing. We created Suzuki. Yeah, it we also feels ch- like to me, Brandon, to kill when I watch it now, is that he's on, he's driving down an artistic path. He's like on his artistic highway and he's going too fast, right? He's going too fast and everybody's like, slow down. And then there's the wall there. And rather than slamming on the brakes, his reaction is like, fuck it, I got to speed up. There's no time to hit the brakes is what is what branded to kill feels like to me when i watch it this time it's not an act of aggression it's like my only chance is to drive through this thing because it's way too late to hit the brakes so you think stylistically he hits a wall basically and dies and has his career killed and is crumpled up into a mangled mess but we've all and we're all at that that age now where we have experienced all these defeats, right? We have experienced yeah. time running out. We, yeah. And this is something when you're young, you just don't have. But when you are, shit, I've like painted for 10 years and it went nowhere. Now, yeah. what do I do? You know, yeah. and, and this Wasted realization 12 is- 12 years of my life as a film programmer. Yeah. What the fuck? Can I get those back, please? Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, you, you, you even, you work through these problems and you do can appreciate what that has brought to you. But it's, in the moment, it's really hard to see that. It took me, it took me, I think, five, six years at least to get over this thing I'd worked on to become like an, a fine art, fine artists and it just didn't work i wouldn't i was forcing it i was forcing them to be and here's the formula that all of a sudden dawned on me six years later i was like i was constantly disappointed that the people i despise don't accept me and my father always told me like everybody can tell you don't want their help and stuff and i was like why am i hiding it really well i'm being super charming and telling great (laughs) stories it's like i can tell you this is awful i'm their bad conscience they're all playing this game and I arrive and I'm there back conscious and everybody can tell nobody wanted me there because I'm like holding up, like, you got to do it like this. You got to be pure and all this stuff. I'm the number three killer. I'm going to be number one. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, it was a, a disaster. And I, I'm really sorry for everybody that held out, like believing in me for all these years, doing crazy sacrifices yeah. so I can play out this game, you know? Yeah, me too. Um, I feel bad that that, bosses and people within there put like their confidence in me like you're going to be the next guy same thing with Kala I had a college professor really wanted me to teach at our at our farmer alma mater and I just kept ducking it and I feel I feel bad that he thought I wanted to be a university professor I feel really bad for the people who had like oh you could easily could be but the 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 thing is then no I don't want to be I know exactly what I would hate exactly you could easily we could easily all be these different things and we know it in our circle of friends all these talented people but it's it takes so little to make a shift and and it never happens right it's like this really it's just this some something in your personality with will not allow you to do that because i always said it's it, i called it like you got to go home with yourself yeah at the end of the day you got to go home with yourself so like and the then worst- when you're on the right path you know it you're like why did i do this other thing you <laughs> yeah. instantly know it but that leads into the taisho trilogy to talk to you about i feel like that's him if you ask him i bet he says those are my real movies those Four movies, and I bet he includes Capone Cries a lot in it. I really oh, yeah. would bet he does, which is <laughs> yeah. set in the same era and employs a lot of the same strategic tactics to insane effect. If you want to talk about 
unhinged Suzuki. That is the one you you need to see. It's it's ten times more bizarre than Branded to Kill. Much total disaster. Zero total defense disaster, of it. Yeah. No good. But just like if you want to see what him actually going off the rails looks like, it's not Branded to Kill. Branded to Kill is very under control in some in comparison. Yeah. And have you guys seen, I don't know whether it was my, my list, Tale of Sorrow and Sadness? Yes, I did. I, I, I watched that for the first time recently. And that's that one, what a, I'm such a plain guy, right? So I would, mm. because I reject the artness because I come from that world. So I'm a, a meat and a potatoes guy. So I want the, the and, and I see so much in the Taisho trilogy that gets on my nerves because yes. it's my father's world. It's, it's something I come from. So I understand it and I don't want to see it anymore. But I love the Tale of Sorrow and Sadness, which is 77, where everybody says it's a golf comedy. It's like, it could be further from the truth. A golf comedy. Yeah. It is weird. Really Suzuki examining this new wealth that happened in Japan, this new, like, violence of suburbia this 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 really tv culture that emanates everything and he does it while remaining completely suzuki and i i really think that is a a big loss that he didn't do anything in the 80s because he would have done miracles with that sort of suzuki and the new 80s boom that happened what are you Japan. talking about he made he made lupin the third the most oh, yeah. generic <laughs> and forgettable movie and he's ever been associated he's so with. so bad and i love lupin i grew up with that cartoon i cannot watch that it's it so sucks bad. especially it's because i convinced myself i hadn't seen it until this time i was like i i love the uh the miyazaki lupin oh, yeah. the third i bet it i bet it's like that i bet oh, it's you know and um, yeah but it's um again he goes into somebody else's territory and thinks he can just come in with this and it's kind of a disaster but if he got to make 40 of those he'd make amazing things probably you know <laughs> it's and it's like yeah to lead into the tie show he uh so he gets ostracized and not only uh do the studios ban his movies and not only do they kind of they, they rob him. The five major studios conspire against him and forbid him to work. He cannot make movies. So he has to turn to TV and commercials and do that for, which I think after the, I don't know what the settlement was. I have no idea of the sum that he really got from Nikatsu. I don't uh, think he got anything because they were going out of business. Yeah. I think, I think that there was no money was to be a, had because yeah, they're going out of business is my yeah. understanding of it, is that he won the case and was entitled to a settlement, but because yeah. of the bankruptcy, oh, he wow. didn't actually get anything. But I'm not an expert well, <laughs> on the legalities. Is, he yeah. gains an incredible status through all of this in Japan. Not, yeah. He's not sort of the classic we as the West discover him and now we yeah. filter it back to Japan like with Kurosawa. He really is like a, an iconic figure at that point. He's like, like, and, he's like what Michael Winner is in the UK, where in America you're like, he's directed yeah. Death Wish or something, yeah, even but then he's a personality in the he's UK. He's a personality, but he's more like there's a particular, I don't know, uh, like you said, Michael Winner, he goes on talk shows, but Michael Winner really divides people where Suzuki becomes like almost like a benevolent oh. grandfather. He shows up in all these TV shows and quirky. He's like a magician and, yeah. and he, he lends himself to everything. And he's so malleable that what makes him so cool. And he's he, like, one of the dressed... best looking old Japanese guys ever too. <laughs> Just sounds like yeah, 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 there are many, but many, many actors that go really eccentric and travel, like get like 
uh, convert to Islam and 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 have cool ponchos at later age. Shintaro Katsu, I mean, he goes completely yeah. off the rockers, like wearing sombreros and then hangs out with Baltus <laughs> in the Swiss Alps and like and they they all like real. Um, but these people also work for like six decades and, and yeah. span all these experiences. And then they become, they're nightclub singers and J Japanese culture really embraces the fullness. Even if you can't sing, you bring out an album and you have a record out and then you, you, you come on TV shows. And uh, I was saying that that's another anecdote I was mentioning in Branded to Kill, how much it cuts to the bone. When I was living in Japan, there was a completely bizarre TV show where a guy is naked in his apartment and he has to win everything. He has to enter all these raffles and lotteries to make basically survive in this apartment. But then he gets like a surfboard and he's naked and he has nothing to eat. So he can't do anything. And yeah. this apartment keeps filling up with shit and uh, paraphernalia. It's amazing. I completely, I was like hooked on it. I kept watching. I was like turning down like girls wanting to come in a, uh, like to a bar. And I was like, no, no, I got to go home and watch this, how this <laughs> experiment ends with this poor guy and it's sort of his dick was pixelated or he had like a, a melanzane he had like a what's it called um aubergine over it or something okay. and it was absolutely bizarre but it fed into this claustrophobia of what tokyo really does feel like a lot of isolation packed together and it's also what brandon to kill doesn't have it's completely an abandoned empty tokyo it's completely yeah. surreal and it never is the loneliness of the killers and those and sort of that sort of where i find like you said he finds that 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 next level of poetry that then he gets to leave behind in the gangster movies finally where he's like okay enough with these let me tie show ghost stories let me not focus on finding uh and ending with a singer that yeah. goes and the well, biggest me, uh, stars of the 70s want to work with him i mean yeah uh, 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 he really he uh he, he's he's already worked um uh, with, with Harada, Yoshio Harada, who's like the iconic rebel bad guy in the 70s. He's already worked with him in Tale of Sorrow and Sadness, but he yeah. comes up in Sigoyna Weisen and he just like, he's this presence, like Nakadai level presence of, on screen. And then even in um, uh, Kuyoki Inami, like he is able to cast these archetypes now from their movies yeah. from their all respective 20 year careers he doesn't cast them like oh you play this poet no 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 he calls cast harada because he stands for something now and yeah. that's what really is outstanding in that trilogy like he's able to like let me just introduce the trilogy real oh yes yeah, so. which is that yeah no problem uh this is they are three metaphysical ghost stories you know like the the plots are are kind of they're very oblique, you know, Kagerosa, I wrote down in my notes, the plot is story of a playwright and an anarchist who team up to fuck ghosts. It's basically Hellraiser, right? Yeah. Where they're trying to fuck a ghost back to life is essentially what the plot of this is. Um, but I think the obvious uh, connection and sort of touchstone for these movies is Renoir's mid-50s trilogy of Golden Coach, Elena and Her Men and French Can-Can, where you have filmmakers who are aged out of their golden age, but make a trilogy that they're really convinced are their masterpieces that they're going to be remembered for. Um, and I think that this has the similar feel where there's definitely critics that go to bat for the Taisho trilogy as the best of um, Suzuki and critics that go to bat for the Golden Coach Can-Can trilogy for Renoir is the best of him. But I think that 
they're very different. They're just a stylistic leap to something else entirely. You know, this is even in, in Kazero, Kagerza, uh, he's famous for filming in the Nakatsu scope when he's at Nakatsu, which is the very wide, wide screen. And he does, it looks even more square than Academy Ratio in Kagerza. Yeah, this is an incredibly square frame with very little action and movement inside of it. And there's no coverage. It is cut together and locked together like boxes. But these are movies that get, you You hear there's a certain kind of critic that's like, um, I know about Japan. I will be the shaman that guides you through to interpret these strange foreign symbols and meanings, right? And there's no question that these films are definitely very Japanese. There are a lot of references to specific uh, uh, ghosts and spiritual concepts, and a lot of references to kabuki theater and references to certain kinds of, you know, the woodcut art. And uh, Yumeji is about a real reference, a real guy and a real, real artist. Um, but to me, these movies are as intelligible as Boonwell or Dreyer which seem like the pretty obvious touchstones for it. I think that these movies are very much indebted to, if if you sort of, if the other uh, Nakatsu genre movies like the gangster films are indebted to MGM in some fundamental way, these are indebted to Dreyer and Boonwell in the same way, that these are very dry spiritual movies that frequently have incredibly strange comedy in them you know uh dreyer obviously has has less comedy you might say none whatsoever but i think that that's why i see boone well in this so much and, and it's there's no question he's trying to push what he's doing to the outer limits of a concept with them as well and if you're not on their wavelength if your reaction is these are super pretentious full of shit hot air movies that are a collection of cool shots like the others but they want you to think the cool shots mean something more than the ple- aesthetic mm. pleasures of them. You know, you can, you can accuse these movies of a phoniness that I would have a hard time defending, except that I think his idea, the spiritual aspects of his nihilism are very clearly expressed in them. You know, sort of his idea as a quote that like, I don't think there's a God, but if there is a God, he'd be more like an evil spirit, like an evil wind spirit right, is basically what the quote is. And that embodies that sense of spirituality in this film, I think, in these films in a lot of ways, which again, all three of them are about, essentially, there's a guy who is an artist of some kind who is plagued by ghosts and hauntings and loses his relationship to the material world through his relationship with this ghost is what happens in all three of them. Essentially, somebody is seduced, sexually seduced, away from the physical world, the concrete world, to a more uh, metaphysical aspect. And I think that that's the kind of nihilism that Suzuki is after, is that, again, if you want to sing, then sing. If you want to die, then die. Is these movies? It's you know just being being pulled along, and they're incredibly jokey. Um, there's a lot of strange comedy in them, like in Kazeroza, where you know they're eating the food, and then he reaches into his kimono and pulls out a mushroom that looks like a dick. You know, like that's the kind of comedy you're dealing within these movies too but a lot of them are just excuses for cool shots that i don't think can be interpreted uh rationally you know and i really do 
I think that uh, Zagrandovice and, and Umeji are one step down. I like them a lot, a lot. And to me, Kageroza is the one that's really yeah. phenomenal. But it's worth pointing out, too, like just the... as a way of introduction that, you know, yeah. kind of the significance of it being set in the Taisho era. Uh, this is the time, you know, it's almost compatible to the Weimar era of Germany, where all these great artists are coming forth, all these great writers and painters. Yeah. And that this uh, specifically, it's the time of the Iro Guro Nensenso, which we'd already mentioned, Eduardo Rampo, you know, coming out of this era. And so this kind of story, this kind of like weirdly surreal, supernatural story is very much that kind of story. Yeah. And I was also going to say, Yumeji is, to me, this is his Satin's Broughton. It's about mm. the artist as narcissist and psychopath, right? And I think that there are very few people that would be like, hey, you know what? Fassbender's best movie is Satin's Broughton. But my reaction is that is the one I identify with most. That is the one I love in my heart most. I'm not going to try and tell you it's his best. But if you're on its wavelength, it's just there's you have no other options for art. You know what I mean? There's very few movies you can look to that are on the specific wavelength these films are on. And there is something incredibly strange about the self-interrogation of these movies with him, where he, I think, is questioning his own artistic value and his own artistic motivations and trying to reconcile the idea of like, none of this matters, all is dust, you know, all is ghosts and wind, you know, and going, but wait, this matters to me. This is really important to me. Uh, why am I doing this? Am I a victim of my own uh, narcissism and my own foolishness where I am ascribing great meaning to basic uh, human desires and needs that are animal in some way, and I'm trying to pump them up? Or is there something more mysterious and transcendental happening with existence and reality that's beyond my grasp and that my failings of understanding uh, need to be thought about? And I think that's what's happening in those movies. Um, yeah, so really anyway. well put. And I, 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 I knew that I knew that this is lurking at the bottom and in your analysis of them, because it's just you need a key to open them. And the fact that they yes. became really popular and um, successful and gave him this great end, almost the satisfaction of really having recognition at the time, which very few artists up to this point get that they're really famous in their lifetime for doing the work and not just because they are a figure or, you know, they, they, they live from the past of this one incident that he got fired and all this stuff. So yeah. that's very satisfying. And um, I, I seldom, like you said, these gatekeepers of Japanese culture, and especially in the film critics, are super annoying. Whether they <laughs> glom onto Ozu or just Mitsuguchi and then there's no one else, or it's just, you know, every weird, quirky bullshit that's clearly sub level movie and whatever they defend becomes annoying. But with this, I almost found that I always agreed with the narrative. Uh, I could never give in to them. I always agreed with the narrative that Suzuki needed the restrictions of Nikatsu. Yeah. That kind of bore him as the, if we can call him an auteur, then he's an auteur in these films where yeah. he had to kind of fight with against these restrictions. And I saw this in myself now that I have, you know, deadlines and, 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 uh, I need to finish by a certain time. I, I kind of enjoyed this. I, I, I didn't enjoy working for the void of this great retrospective one day because mm -hmm. uh, it, it was so hard I w when I was making paintings to stand up to art history 
these giant five, six meter paintings that were so big because they weren't supposed to be mediocre and not to fit into your living room. I was making these big totems. I was yeah. making these big statements, but it was so lonesome, right? And yeah. to have to have that recognition because this is essentially what he's making here. He's making these statements and he gets the recognition that's super satisfying and rare and rare. And he gets lots of prizes in, in Berlin and Sigourney Weisen. And obviously it that I... I I just distrusted it so much because it's the, the world I know. And when I watched them, they never held it, the attention from me because I bring all the goodwill in the world to Suzuki and Japan and the cinema and ghost stories. This is all the stuff I love, but I yeah. cannot sit and love the actors. And I always fall asleep. It's one of those things. I, I can't unlock them. And I always distrusted that he was really happy with them as his oeuvre, as his most important, because he made Pistol Opera next. And he tried to go back into yeah. the, eh, maybe, you know, should make something cool, successful, and like a, another branded to kill, where it's like cool killers yeah. running around. And no, that's Pistol sort of the Opera worst feels desperate. Pistol yeah, Opera feels, feels like, what did, what did you want? I can do that again, you know? Yeah, and it feels like, oh, set pieces, but now it's like punk rock nightclub decorations instead of, he influencing the, it, the it feels like all of those terrible extreme japanese cinema stuff from that like survive yeah, style Mika. plus five yeah <laughs> it feels like all of that like boneheaded like yeah like the guys dressed up like you know fassbender in the leopard print suit and cutting each other's heads off and there's a dude in a wheelchair and there's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, bad, yeah, yeah bad japanese punk music on the soundtrack and yeah Very just all much, of this yeah. like it's it's like it's it's out of touch it feels yeah and that always gets like oh it's burlesque and that's why i hate that circus aesthetic that's always like and then we show like a bunch of uh, cripples and that becomes really daring yeah it's like it's like freaks yeah yeah exactly that's always the thing john did you have uh because you i know you you're like you're asking me you're like uh chris says i have to and you say ah don't bother so what do i do (laughs) did you stick it out through all of them I uh, only got through uh, Zaguner Weizen, but I loved yeah. it. Yeah. I did love okay. It. Yeah. It, but but I, that's only I, I because get what you mean. that's because you your your wife was eaten by crabs, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a cool <laughs> shot. I was like, oh yeah. No, no. Sorry, John. Sorry. <laughs> no. Yeah. Also, I I get why people could have a tough time sitting through it. It was a chore to sit through, but I enjoyed that chore. And I yeah, look forward to seeing the other two, but I didn't get a chance. I think in the movie theater, like you said, it's it's different. If I'd seen them, I think I had tickets and I walked out really. It was something I had. I bought tickets to Suzuki retrospective and I went every night to force myself to another and I couldn't. And it was, but it was also my failing because I wasn't, I, I hated that everybody loved them so much. And I was kind of like, I was the genre guy and nobody knew the genre stuff. Yeah. They only know Tokyo it's Drift. All, it's also like, a movies that when people talk themselves into it, yeah, I'm suspicious of that too. The conversations I've had about this movie make me go, hmm. Do yeah. you like this? You know, kind yeah, of thing. Sure. Like, I have, I definitely have your same reaction. Look, I don't want to be too hard of an advocate for him. I want to make clear I respect not liking them. And a lot of the things you're, when you said you get the feeling he's not happy with them the way he says, I think that's definitely, I felt that immediately. And it actually made me go, whoa, do I still like these movies now? Because you can feel that in the film. That's what I mean about self interrogation yeah. in them. You can feel like, I'm the king, right? Yeah. 
You know, yeah, and I'm the fact the that top, the audience right? laps it up, the fact that the audience yeah. just streams and they're really financially successful, like from the tent, he gets to make this independent trilogy. It's because he has now arrived and because he's a he's an icon. And also because I think what I partly what I don't like is that 80s Jap- Japanese movies in the 80s and 90s have really they're past their I mean, they really TV has ruined them like like Italian yeah. cinema. It's there's nothing good to be found anymore. And uh and he really fits in this aesthetic, whereas Tale of Sorrow and Sadness, he really taps into something that he is still Suzuki and he's saying profound things about the culture that he's in now, but he's not sort of overstepping. He's not finding, there's so many ghost elements and so much that criticism though, but he's not finger wagging. It's a really tough walk the line. Like I really love, I think I really love Tale of Sorrow and Sadness. And it's almost like, okay, my big comeback movie is Tale of Sorrow and Sadness. I mean, he really didn't want to be loved, right? He's like, no, you guys are going to hate me again, right? That's an interesting one. That one seems to be developing a reputation from what I've seen. I hope so, yeah. I think the poster is incredibly boring. People describe it incredibly boring. But when you, this is, for example, one of those where I feel like, okay, I have to sit through this one. This is not immediately responding to me. It's got a cool soundtrack. It hooks you in. And it's the same color coding is happening in those ridiculous golf outfits. And Mm -hmm. he brings back, Joe has a cameo. It's very gay to flesh in its color strategies. Yeah, it's gate of flesh, but almost they make a lot of sense now. It's just yeah. 80s. It's just that world has caught up to him. It's just stupid aerobics and that world really happened. That the absurd world of Tokyo Drifter has now come everywhere. It's yeah. really like, it's it's that house structure again, where the boy sort of climbs up into his little attic and it, it has a lot of these artistic short hands that he comes to use in the in the taisho things where it's just absurd dreams of crawling into inner spaces and stuff but it's happening in this really tv cooking show setting or something like golf shit but that i find where he's most i think suzuki is like at at his highest powers but like you said i respect liking them so um, well, let me I will keep this. giving them a shot. I keep, no. will keep giving them a shot. I think I have to. Sometimes the age has to find you too for certain movies. You know, yeah. there's, there's things you love right away, and then that's so great, right? And others you just leave you, and you're like, I used to love this. I don't know. Yeah, no, I've had that experience a lot recently, where I've gone back and watched movies I used to really have an affection for. Sad. It's super yeah, sad. and I'm to a point where I'm like, I'm not going to watch any old movies again. You know, it yeah. just happened this week. I watched the uh, director's recut of Raising Cain by Brian De Palma, yeah. which is a movie that I was like, that's crazy. I have a lot of, I watched it again. I'm like, this is dumb and this sucks. You know, like that was my yeah, reaction. I, the, I was like- De Palma experience a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that's the De Palma experience. But yeah. let me um, let me bring it to the end. This has been a great conversation. Let me ask you, you know, I think you've said Fighting Elegy and Carmen from Koichi. What's your top three? What's the third one to round it out, do you think? Ooh. Let me go. It has to be a gangster one, I think, because that's like you said, those are his main, the women. Is the it suffering. not Youth of the Beast? We had talked about doing just a Youth I, of the Beast. Yeah, episode. it's definitely use of the Youth of the Beast, but it could be any number. Man yeah. with a shotgun. No, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I, yeah, top three. I, not talking between Branded to Kill and Youth of the Beast, just because I love Joe. And I think that's where Joe is at his best. He strips yeah. down. He, he gets a haircut. He's not the matinee idol anymore. His face finally makes sense this kind of 
beaten up things like what happened to this guy he's just come from somewhere but he's lived through something and is in his black trench coat with a shotgun and just colors exploding yeah youth of the beast any that that's it i'm gonna call chris out he he told me before we started the episode he prefers uh mizushima over joe oh yeah i mean what that's what you said i said no i said i like in terms of uh in terms of suzuki i like uh tamio I like him yeah, better. Yeah, crazy good. Than oh. Joe. Yeah. Tamio used to annoy me, but he's when you see him, when you see him over and over in different role, in different directors, Black Sun and, and everything, yeah. he's so good. He's so good. And yeah. and, and not and he's got he's got the right realistic sharpness. He brings something good out, but truthfully, it's not even about the actors. It's Yumiko Nagawa is oh, the yeah. one above True. all the others Truly. for me. She is so cool. She's and others. she's. Oh, she's so sexy and beautiful, but not in the not in the classic sense. You know, she has a flaw, and that brings the realism to it. She's, she's so got gorgeous and innocence, and, but also a moral depravity. She reminds yeah, when she me says, a lot of Barbara Sakawa and Berlin Alexander Platz. Yeah, when she told, says when she says um in in Story of a Prostitute, I want to slam my body against as many men as possible. She's yeah. jolly about this in the beginning. She's well, not when she like has a, the the spit on everything scene in Gate yeah. of Flesh, and she gets that look on her face, like yeah spit on everything i'm gonna spit on buildings and babies and happy couples is this deranged and she's looks so sweet while she's now she's super a brave actress also like jumping into all kinds of things and uh yeah what are your top top three i think is a good ending round exact same interesting exact same exact same you have kazeros on on your top three now no you're right you're you're right you're right so let me think about it real quick fighting elegy and carmen for sure and yeah, Kagerazan. I think those are my three. Yeah, I think those are my good. three. Although talking about the the Yakuza movies, Youth of the Beast and and Branded to Kill. But they get enough love. I think it's good. Yeah, well, when it's when outside of, when I'm inside yeah. my head with those movies too much, I want to push them away in favor of other things. Then talking about them, it's just like the love blossoms again. John, what are your top three? I'm glad we're on the same page with uh, um, Elegy and, uh, and Carmen. Those movies are both just dynamite. My, my personal third would be a tie between Youth of the Beast and Detective Bureau because I can't can't distance to those two movies enough. Uh-huh. I love them both. And Detective Bureau has so much fun, broad stuff. Like the detective office that's full of incompetent assholes. It reminds me of uh, they all laughed a little bit. Uh, but yeah, just everything about this movie is fun. Like you said, when Joe gets up and starts dancing, that's just a beautiful moment. <laughs> and yeah, it's they're cool. Like, like Velvet that. Hustler, Danger Pays, all the other directors. Um, that are all there's a good world of awesome movies around that time that yeah. are very much on the wavelength of Detective Bureau 2 3, like the whole Joe vehicles, right? He's like, uh, he 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 gets to really uh be wild in those movies, like the mid 60s, like it just happens, it all comes together. Well, and, when you uh, see him dance too, you realize, like, oh, I always think of him as a tough guy. He's an actor. He's like a theater kid who wants to dance. When you yeah. see him actually do it, you're like, it's like when you see uh, Jimmy Cagney dance for the first time, you're like, oh yeah, he's a theater kid. You know yeah. what I mean? You have that that memory of like, and oh, he's I know Lupin. people like Joe. Yeah, he's he the real, exactly. He's the real life Lupin. Like, right? He's, yes, he, yes, he, yes. He, he, till his old age, he was just effortlessly cool. 
Yeah. It's like marring his face is such a bizarre choice at the beginning, but it, 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 it and, and the implants of becoming like a chipmunk and how pretty he was. <laughs> he was like a good looking guy or even as the villain in the beginning when you see him without the implants. It's in the unclear early Suzuki, to me what he thinks he's supposed to look like. It's, it's, it's bizarre. It's, he has almost no precursors like, oh, I want to be Elvis or something. No, it's like, who is this? He Why? looks more like Elvis without him. You know? And they start to sag and around the time of Youth of the Beast. They used to be really high. And then he becomes like Droopy the dog, like towards the end. And they just really <laughs> fall out. And then he gets them taken out and put back in. And then finally taken out for good at the end. He looks awesome. I mean, he looks he, he looks, looks awesome with the men. He's, he looks so awesome with the men, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's, this is great. Thank you for doing this episode. John, did yeah, you have I'm, any more questions or wrap-up thoughts or anything for Tony? I'm so excited to finally have you on here. You are really, truly just one of the people we know through through podcasting and, and social media who feels like completely on our wavelength you know you're oh completely the- and i listen to every one of your episodes and i'm i like really honestly the literal the the book review ones and, and the guests you have and it's just it's amazing it's it really every time i feel like i'm having these weird conversations with you guys for 20 years already you know yeah. like uh you're in my head so much and i i i I can never refer enough to you guys on any topic. I want to always know what you guys think about anything. And I, I, I well, same, the, the, same the rare thing, with thing you, is, man. if the you rare recommend thing is, something, I watch it. And like, yeah, that's like, yeah. there are very few with, people I defer to on films and you're one of them. Like, what does yeah. Stella think? Okay. Then that's correct. Yeah. You, you are the only person I would say in my life who will recommend a movie I've never heard of. And I love it. And it started with a uh, castle vows hadn't heard of it oh yeah and man. you just like mentioned it and i was like what is this and i was like fuck yeah i'm listening to this guy what is what is the ichikawa one ten dark the ten one dark that, women Ten that's dark women so awesome okay, I, so that's I next th- yeah i guess we could do this off the air but it's that so one's next awesome. on my list yeah it's you are just incredible guest you're incredibly knowledgeable we we've so excited to have you on the yeah show thank you guys this, so much i i anytime Everything on any topic for. amazing <laughs> cool guys <laughs> any, I, I don't envy the editing job but yeah <laughs> no this is gonna be a long one i'm not afraid of having a three and a half hour episode i'm not afraid i'll look it in the face we'll figure it very out very cool thank you guys so much thank, thank you, you Tony. Man.